Probably the most important thing is just to appreciate that, that there really is this biology of aging, that there are biological processes that determine the rate at which different animals age, and within the same species, within humans, the rate at which individual people age. So there is this, these, this biological process that we can study and understand very much like development is a process. And in principle, when we understand it well enough, we can modify that biology in a way that will delay the functional declines and diseases that go along with aging. And in fact, we as a field now have been extremely successful at doing this in laboratory animals. There are multiple interventions that have been shown to significantly delay the biology of aging, target the hallmarks of aging, increase lifespan, and extend health span in every laboratory organism where this has been attempted, and probably most relevant to people in mammals like mice and rats, we can increase lifespan 20, 30, all the way up to 50% by targeting the biology of aging. Welcome to The Proof Podcast, a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. Today's episode is with Professor Matt Cablin. Dr. Cablin's research interests are focused on understanding the biological mechanisms of aging in order to facilitate interventions that promote health span and improve quality of life for people and companion animals. Over the last few decades researching aging, he's published more than 250 scientific papers in leading journals, including Science and Nature. In this conversation, we discuss how Dr. Cablin thinks about aging, including the hallmarks of aging, key parts of our lifestyle that affect the biology of aging, as well as promising drugs and supplements that may improve both quality of life and lifespan. Disclaimer up front, at times this is a fairly in-depth discussion of cell biology and what drives aging. So if you're wanting something light, on his background noise, this might not be the best episode. I recommend 40 Hertz music for that. Even if you are paying attention, keep in mind this is quite a complex area of science that involves some pretty scientific terms like cellular senescence and telomere attrition. Try not to get frustrated if it doesn't land on the first shot. Just focus on the big themes and we'll continue to explore this topic together going forward. I'm not quite sure this conversation will change the way that I currently think about optimizing health span and lifespan, but I can see a future, pending further research, where looking at health through the lens of aging biology does create a paradigm shift of sorts. In the meantime, I suggest approaching longevity science with a fair degree of caution and skepticism. That's certainly what I'll be doing. While there are legitimate scientists like Dr. Cablin and next week's guest Dr. Nir Barzilai pushing the field forward with integrity, there are also a lot of unsupported claims and hype in this space. My hope is that in addition to introducing you to an emerging way of thinking about health and aging, this episode will serve as a reminder of what the foundations of a healthy lifestyle are, which bar the source of our protein, Dr. Cablin and I seem fully aligned on. With that, Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Matt Cablin. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. 
The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. All right, Matt Cavelin, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be doing this. Thanks. It's great to be here. I'm hoping that to, to start here, you can kind of help me out. I'm, I'm struggling to define aging. Hmm. And some say aging is itself uh, a disease. I'm not sure where you kind of stand on this. And then others say, well, it can't be a disease because it occurs from birth or, or maybe even from conception. And uh, at this time of, of life, function appears to be improving, not declining. As someone that studies the biology of aging, how do you define it? Yeah. So, uh, I, I mean, it's a great, great question. I wish I had a really simple answer for you. So first I'll tackle this is aging a disease question. Um, because I think, uh, unfortunately, you know, it, it leads to a lot of, uh, disagreement and angst and, and I don't really, I, I think it's really a semantic argument. I, I don't think it really matters whether we define aging as a disease and in, in the big big picture. I think what's more important to appreciate is that biological aging is the root cause of most of the major diseases, causes of death and disability in developed countries. And regardless of whether we define biological aging as a disease, that underlying relationship between biological aging 
and all of the major causes of death and disability is really what's important because what that means is that if we can understand and eventually modify biological aging, we can have an impact on all of these different functional declines and diseases that, that go along with old age. Um, now, the definition of aging, again, is gets back, get, gets, gets complicated very quickly. I think the, the first thing I would say is, you know, I've already started by defining it as biological aging. And I try to actually use that phrase because I think it's important to be precise. That's the only way we can communicate and understand each other is if we're precise in the words that we use. And aging by itself means different things to different people. Some people think of chronological aging, just the passage of time. That's mm -hmm. a legitimate definition. Given what I've been doing for the last 20 plus years, which is studying the biology of aging, I naturally think about the biology of aging when I say aging. So that's what I mean. And, and all I really mean by that are the cellular, molecular, tissue, organ level changes that happen as, a, as an organism goes from being young to old and the mechanisms that underlie those changes. <clears throat> I think um, you alluded to this idea that you know aging actually starts during development. I think to some extent that's true. The same processes that are active during development continue to be active post-developmentally and probably contribute to the functional declines that go along with aging. So they are a part of the biology of aging. So I'm sorry, I wish I, I wish I had a 30 second answer for you, but I think this is this is a, a complicated topic and, and it, it doesn't lend itself to simple answers. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned there getting to the kind of the root cause. I think people, when they think about the common diseases that that are responsible for premature death today, probably cardiovascular disease and cancer comes to to mind top of the list there are other mm -hmm. things of course but let's take athero atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease as an example here is the aging the cellular processes that you're talking about are they preceding the the sort of fatty plaque that's building up in the artery are they are they upstream of that and then the disease as we know it that ends up killing someone is a kind of manifestation of the aging process is that how you see it uh, I, I think that's fair. I, I think, you know, um, upstream is, uh, is, is probably the, the right term. The way I would think about it is, so it probably depends on the specific disease. So you mentioned cancer, which is a whole, uh, cancer is sort of its own unique beast that we can kind of dive into, but cancer, cardiovascular disease, dementia, kidney disease, metabolic dysfunction, immune senescence, which leads to increased risk of infection, right? All of these have age as their greatest risk factor. And in fact, it's not a linear relationship. What I mean by that is that your, your increase in risk of developing these diseases doesn't go up the same amount each year. It actually goes up exponentially as you get older. So we can have a discussion around whether aging, biological aging is mechanistically causal for the disease, which is kind of where you were immediately going. Are the molecular mechanisms that I, that I associate with biological aging actually causing the plaques, right, that go along with cardiovascular disease? That's going to depend a little bit on the disease, and and I think those are important discussions to to have and to understand. I would say first principle though is that just the simple relationship between age and risk of developing all of these different diseases shows us that that the biology of aging is at a minimum 
creating a physiological state that places you, everyone, at increased risk of developing these diseases. And then the mechanistic links between aging biology and disease processes are going to be somewhat different for, for different diseases. So for cardiovascular disease, again, it's not only one cell type, one tissue type at play here. So there are going to be functional changes within the heart itself that are driven by the biology of aging. So things like mitochondrial dysfunction that we know contribute to declines in heart function, which lead to decreases in circulatory capacity with age. And then there are sort of systemic effects that are not unique to the heart, such as inflammatory signals given off by senescent cells and other what we call hallmark of aging that contribute to vascular dysfunction uh, and, and dysfunction in other tissues and organs. So again, I'm going to keep saying this. There's not a simple 30 second answer to any of these things, but I think the answer is probably both, right? Aging is causally contributing to mechanisms specific to each individual disease. And it's, there are these systemic changes that go along with aging that maybe are indirectly influencing risk of developing these diseases. Mm -hmm. I want to come back to hallmarks of aging and and biological age and we can maybe discuss sort of the epigenetic clocks that that are sure. out there and people are talking about um but before that there's this this idea and i think this kind of is a continuation of what you're talking about here the relationship between aging and these i guess age-related diseases maybe we would call them there's this idea out there that you can get to maybe 80 or 90 Maybe this is what we all aspire to, um, and you just die in your sleep without having endured a, a kind of overt disease state. You know, dying of old age, so to speak. That seems to be a goal. Many people will, would say, "Look, I'd like to just get to eighty or ninety in good health, and then just uh, pass away peacefully." Is that possible that the, the body can kind of just shut down because the cells are, are generally aged versus some sort of more overt disease like a brain tumor or lung cancer or a heart attack, et cetera. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I mean, clearly it's possible because some people do achieve something close to that. Right. But uh, even then, I think uh, I'm, uh, I would speculate that, that there are, I mean, even in those people, right, there are going to be sub disease, subclinical functional declines. And, and so this is actually, I think an important point is sometimes in these discussions, we focus way too much maybe on diseases, right? Which are clinically diagnosed conditions based on symptoms, right? But even in people who are non-diseased or that you're still going to see functional declines that go along with aging, there has yet to be an 85-year-old that has walked this earth that has been functionally the same as they were at 25, even if they don't have a disease. So, so I don't think it's, I think it's probably unrealistic to think that even in that kind of, you know, best case scenario, that you aren't going to still have some functional declines preceding any disease diagnosis. Having said that, it is absolutely possible to push those functional declines back, minimize those functional declines, push the diseases of aging back later into life and maintain quality health, you know, as long as possible. And, and for me personally, and I think for many people in the field, that really is as much or more the goal than it is to significantly increase human lifespan. It's, it's really, you know, about this concept of health span, 
maximizing the healthy periods of life, maintaining function. I really personally, I focus a lot on function, you know, as much as I do disease, because I think that's really what's important to most of us, right? We want to be able to do the stuff that we want to do as long as possible, maximize our ability to enjoy life. And that's really you know, a lot about how well are you able to function. So I think that's, it's important just to keep that, that in mind and not get carried away by worrying about only diseases. Um, so again, I don't think it's likely that you can be in perfect health until you're 95 and then, you know, not wake up the next morning, but it absolutely is the case that we can, we can maintain a good quality of life very, very late into life. Um, uh, and, and maximize those, the, those years of health. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the goal being to sort of optimize function and to, I guess, uh, compress the years of disease that were, uh, that are affecting our function. So we're, right. we're enjoying a longer health span. How does this relate to the hallmarks of aging? So if you're at dinner and, and someone says, Okay, Matt, I'm on, I'm on board this idea of optimizing my function. Um, what should I know about the hallmarks of, of aging? Why are they important for us to kind of uh, piece this together and then set up a lifestyle um, and or other interventions that give us the greatest chance of enjoying uh, the, the longest health span possible? Yeah, so, so I would say, first of all, before we dive into the hallmarks themselves, probably the most important thing is just to appreciate that, that there really is this biology of aging, right? That there are uh, biological processes that determine the rate at which different animals age and within the same species, within humans, the rate at which individual people age. So there is this, these, this biological process that we can study and understand very much like development as a process um, and in principle, when we understand it well enough, we can modify that biology in a way that will delay the functional declines and diseases that go along with aging. And in fact, we've been extremely successful. We as a field now have been extremely successful at doing this in laboratory animals. There are multiple interventions that have been shown to significantly delay the biology of aging, target the hallmarks of aging, increase lifespan, and extend health span in every laboratory organism where this has been attempted and probably most relevant to people in mammals like mice and rats, we can increase lifespan 20, 30, all the way up to 50% by targeting the biology of aging. So independent of what that biology is at the molecular level, just understanding that is I think probably the most important thing. Now, I think the other thing to, under, to, to appreciate is, again, as a field, we've been pretty successful at starting to understand what that biology is. And that's where the hallmarks come in, because now we can start to give names to these highly evolutionarily conserved processes that seem to play a fundamental role in modulating the rate at which different animals age or, or different individuals within a species age. And so depending on who you talk to and depending on the day of the week, there's nine or 10 or maybe 11 of these hallmarks of aging and they're overlapping and interacting. So it's a little bit messy, but, um, but we can give names to these things. And they include things like telomere shortening, which lots of people have heard of. We've known about telomere shortening as a potential contributor to aging for more than 20 years now. They include mitochondrial dysfunction. Mitochondria are, uh, of course, 
um, sort of colloquially referred to as the powerhouses of the cell. They produce a lot of the molecular energy that, that our cells need in order to function. Mitochondrial damage is a hallmark of aging, so decreased power output is one way to think of it. Um, senescent cells we can probably talk about is another uh, hallmark of aging. And so there, there are nine of these things. Epigenetic changes is the one that probably is getting the most attention um, right now. Uh, DNA damage. So these are all cellular, molecular processes that that scientists in the field, um, there's some consensus around the idea that these contribute directly to the biology of aging and thereby to the functional declines and diseases that go along with old age. You said evolutionary, evolutionary uh, conserved process. Yeah. If someone's hearing that for the first time. What, what does that actually mean? Yeah. Basically it means that, that, that the hallmarks of aging aren't specific to humans. It's the same hallmarks of aging. We think that largely drive the biology of aging in people and dogs and cats, pick your favorite farm animal in laboratory animals like mice or fruit flies or nematode worms. That's one of the things that I think is really important to appreciate because when I first started in the field, um, you know, 20, 25 years ago now, it wasn't clear that the biology of aging was in fact the same or very similar across all of these widely different organisms, evolutionarily divergent organisms. We now know that while not everything is exactly the same about human aging and dog aging and mouse aging, most of it seems to be shared. So that's what I mean by evolutionarily conserved mechanisms. So if these mechanisms are shared, what is it that separates different animals with regards to average life expectancy? So if you, if you look at a dog versus a human or even like a Greenland shark often comes up yeah. in this conversation, I think they might live 300 or, or 400 years. Is this a, a selection pressure type um, explanation or from an evolutionary point of view, why do different animals with these same mechanisms have different life expectancies? Yeah. I mean, this is a really good question. And again, <laughs> it's very difficult to give a short answer to this. So, so what I would, and it's also, I think, fair to say we don't completely know, right? So um, so I think it's it's fair to say that that environment plays a huge role in the rate at which the biology of aging occurs. So one way to think about this is the hallmarks of aging represent a network. And you could think of it as, you know, there's, there's um, information coming into that network and information going out of that network. And it's sort of the rate at which this network decays that is driving the rate of biological aging. So one of the things that influences information coming into this network is metabolic rate. So how fast is the engine running? And we know that across many different species, there's a wide range of, of metabolic rate. And so there's, there is evidence, certainly supportive of the idea, there's this idea called rate of living theory, that metabolic rate is a primary determinant of species lifespan. That probably plays, plays a role. There's also um, uh, how well equipped is the organism to deal with the breakdowns that go along with age in this network. So, so how functional is the repair capacity of that organism? Organisms that have better repair capacity are going to age more slowly, be able to handle the breakdown of the system and last longer. What are the evolutionary forces driving that? I think is an open question. I, I think most people in the field would agree that it's unlikely that lifespan has been directly selected for to a great extent. Maybe a small 
amount of natural selection has gone towards selecting for long lifespan. Uh, but it's, it's, I think most people in the field would agree it's unlikely that natural selection has specifically said, okay, we're going to evolve a long lifespan in this species. More likely where selection has been aimed is at the the level of reproduction. So in general, so first of all, maybe take a step back for people who don't think a lot about evolution and natural selection. The goal of evolution and natural selection, we believe, is to pass your genetic information on to the next generation, to have babies, have enough of them that are going to survive to pass your genetic information on to the next generation. That's the end game. So that's where natural selection is primarily going to be acting. Of course, different species develop different strategies to do this. And what seems clear is that species longevity is often coupled to the rate of development and the age at which sexual maturation occurs. So for example, you know, mice are sexually mature in a few months. Of course, people aren't sexually mature until their teenage years in general. So there's a big difference there. And in general, species that reach sexual maturation over a longer time frame tend to have longer lifespans. And so there's a coupling there with reproduction that it, and that's probably where natural selection is acting. But, you know, these are hard it's hard to do experiments to prove where natural selection is acting. So this is really, a, a, in many ways, it's an evolutionary theoretical argument, which is why I tend not to get into those arguments because right. I like things where we can get answers, not where we just <laughs> yell at each other. Yeah, and and I appreciate you spend a lot of time thinking about and focus on, on health span, not just about uh, lifespan. But I do want to, just to clarify, double click on lifespan here sure. for one moment. Um, because there are different kind of ideas out there. I think um, some folks like David Sinclair, I've heard, suggest that humans could live to 150, 200 years or, or perhaps even longer. And then I think Charles Brenner has a, a different take um, on that. So what what do you think is the ceiling? Do you have a view on, on what the sort of upper limit is for human lifespan um, without us sort of going to the extent of, I don't know, getting together all the 90 year old men and, and having them be the only ones that reproduce or something. Like <laughs> I'm not sure that would work to be honest with you, but um, in fact, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't. <laughs> uh, so I, I mean, I think, you know, the first thing to say is I, I don't, I don't, so, so I don't think there's necessarily uh, any maximum limit on human lifespan. If we allow for, you know, what might happen in terms of technological developments in the next 50 years or whatever, like who, who can predict, right? But, but I also think, you know, you can, you can make a case that in the absence of new technologies, new interventions, the species maximum lifespan for humans is not much greater than 125 years. A lot of people have lived on this planet. And as far as we know, the longest lifespan ever recorded is 122 years and, and some number of months. So in the absence of new interventions, new technologies, that's roughly the species maximum lifespan, plus or minus 25 years. Mm -hmm. um, I, don't, I don't disagree that it's possible, though, that given some of the things that we're studying now, we can do better than that. Um, whether it's going to be an extra decade or two or 50 years, uh, I think that just depends on, you know, your own sort of personal optimism. Um, the one thing I would say, though, is one of the reasons why I'm not particularly optimistic that we are on the cusp of immortality is if you look at the 
magnitude of lifespan extension we as a field have been able to achieve in laboratory animals, most of what people are studying today is less effective than what we were able to do 20 years ago, 10 years ago at least. So the largest lifespan extension in a mouse, which is the standard laboratory animal used for these studies, comes from a calorie restriction study that was done in the 1980s or 1990s. We've known about calorie restriction since 1930s. So not quite a hundred years, but going on a century. And nobody's done better than that. Rapamycin is the best small molecule intervention for increasing lifespan in laboratory animals. We've known about that in mice since 2009 and in invertebrates since 2004. So so it's not as if the field is continually showing more and more and larger and larger and larger effects, which makes me wonder if we maybe have kind of hit the upper limit for what we're going to be able to do, given the knowledge that we have today. I certainly believe there's a lot out there we don't understand about the biology of aging, and I think we can absolutely do better, but we haven't continued to get larger and larger effect sizes, even in laboratory animals, which is why I, I tend to think it's a little bit misleading to start talking about really large effects, potential large effects on longevity in people. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see somebody do it in a mouse before I get too excited about how soon we're going to be able to do it in people. If someone's wondering about the influence of their genetics versus the environment and their, their lifestyle, on yeah. how long they're going to live. I know there was, you know, the famous Danish twin study back in the nineties. Um, and, and people cite that as sort of evidence that, that maybe, you know, 80% or so of, of your longevity is determined by the environment, um, exposures, your lifestyle, all of that stuff and the rest by your genes. Is that something that you subscribe to? Has that been reproduced? Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that, and I don't know exactly what the percentage is, but I think it's pretty clear that somewhere around 75% of human longevity is determined by environment. Now, of course, under environment are going to be lifestyle factors, right? Which we know play a huge role in longevity. So I also think that kind of makes sense. The one thing I would add to that is that, and this is a very individual thing, um, your genetics can 100% determine your longevity if you have a variant for a disease allele that's going to kill you in your 50s, 60s, 65, 70, right? So it, again, this is why I, I think, yes, it's important to appreciate environment plays a huge role in longevity, but you also want to be aware of your genotype. And if you've got one of those risk alleles, be taking action when you can take action to actually deal with that. So I don't want to minimize the importance of genetics, but environment in human longevity appears to be more important than genetics on average when we look across the entire population. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan 
now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Insight Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Insight Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. The field seems to be moving towards um, epigenetic clocks and there's a lot of people talking about biological age and I, I think we we shared the blueprint um, Brian Johnson yeah. put together that I think many people will have heard of or if not can can Google. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of curious about how you see epigenetic clocks playing a role in research and also in in as an individual in your own monitoring of your health status. So if I think about myself, for example, um, and, and I want to know if maybe I'm focusing on the wrong thing here, I'm, I'm thinking about what are the top predictors of disease. And I look at, you know, blood standard, traditional blood test results, like where's my APOB level at? What's my blood pressure doing? Triglycerides, mm -hmm. waist circumference, yep. you know, thinking about your strength and your cardiovascular fitness and there's various different functional tests, of course, for that stuff. And I've been placing most of my focus on sort of setting up a lifestyle and uh, nutrition, supplementation, exercise, all of that stuff to optimize those as, as best as I can. Should I be focusing more so on my biological age as measured by some sort of epigenetic clock? Would that be a more accurate representation of how I'm aging? Yeah. So I think there's, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, so, so I think the first thing again, that's important to appreciate is we talked about these nine or 10 or 11 hallmarks of aging, depending on who you ask. Epigenetic changes is only one of them. 
So, so this idea that by measuring your, your epigenome with age, you are measuring biological aging, I think is an, is an unfortunate oversimplification of the, the, the complexity of biological aging. It's, it's unfortunate in the sense that this has sort of become at least among, you know, some some aspects of the general public synonymous that when you measure these epigenetic changes, you're actually measuring biological aging. You're measuring one dimension maybe of biological aging, but is it any more or less important than mitochondrial dysfunction or telomere shortening or, you know, the blood parameters that you talked about, which also reflect to some extent biological aging. We don't know. We don't know how important epigenetic changes are, but I think the key take home is it's only one one piece of the puzzle. It's not the whole picture. And so then the question becomes, you know, if we accept that epigenetic that you can measure epigenetic age, which I think you can with some precision, how important is that compared to the functional measures of aging, right? Or hormonal changes that go along with aging? Um, these are all phenotypes that change with age. And, and I don't think a priori, we can say one is more or less reflective of overall biological aging than the other. But we can have a discussion around which is more important to your health and quality of life. And certainly, I think I, I, think I align more with what you expressed. I mean, I know I align more with what I think you expressed, which is that functional measures uh, and parameters where we understand what that biology is telling us, like these, these, you know, traditional blood tests to me are more informative right now than epigenetic age tests. They're more informative in part because we know what they mean to some extent, at least. And I would say we don't really know what the epigenetic age tests mean and they're actionable in many cases. And right now the epigenetic age tests are not actionable. You can go take an epigenetic age test I've taken an epigenetic age test and you'll get a number back, but what do you do with that? Um, so, so I don't, I don't find the epigenetic age test particularly useful right now. We may get there and we can talk about, you know, what would it take to get to a point where they're useful, but I don't find them particularly useful right now because they don't tell you anything specific that you should do to move your epigenetic age test in, in a particular direction, nor are we a hundred percent confident that moving your epigenetic age test in a particular direction actually reflects better health, longer lifespan, future disease risk. We have, we have some reason to believe that's probably true, but we don't know with any certainty that that's true. Whereas I think for at least some of the blood-based measures that are traditional, we can be pretty confident that you can modify your disease risk if you move those markers in the right direction. And certainly functional measures, you know, uh, how fast can you run? How long can you run? How much weight can you lift? Those are definitely telling you something important about your health. So that's kind of where I fall right now. I, I think that it, again, it's, I, I personally, I feel like it, it's a little bit unfortunate that the, there was this rush to direct to consumer with mm -hmm. these biological age tests without any sort of quality control or validation on what they're telling people. And that's led to, I think, a lot of confusion among the general public about what these things are useful for, what they actually mean, what can we conclude, what do we do about it? Um, mm -hmm. We don't really have an answer to that right now. Yeah, I think, I mean, you just clarified a, a lot for me. The validation piece was what I was really interested in with regards to you know, the result that an epigenetic clock gives you. you know, what does that mean? Should I actually care about it? It sounds like that maybe 
maybe th- with future research we'll, we'll learn more about that and um for the t- for the time being though i might continue focusing on the traditional kind of uh, risk factors um just to kind of take one step back with regards to the the biology of aging within a cell let's say you you look at a, a skin cell in a a 25 year old versus uh, a 50 year old if you were to take us inside that cell and and again we're looking at this from an aging perspective what's that 25 year old cell doing that the 50 year old cell is not or, or what is the 50 year old cell doing that the 25 year old cell is not doing so I'm going to try to simplify this. The real answer is, you know, you probably need to look at a hundred cells because every cell is going to be different. But I think, so you're going to, what you're going to see is changes in many of these hallmarks. That's another thing that I don't think I said this explicitly, but it is useful to appreciate of these nine to 11 hallmarks, the relative importance of each of those hallmarks in different cell types is different. So the relative importance of telomere shortening is is probably higher in a skin cell, a dividing cell like a fibroblast, than it would be in a neuron, which is not dividing. So so that's important to appreciate. But probably what you're going to see in this particular case are shorter telomeres, meaning the cell has undergone more cell divisions, increased mutations, so DNA damage, less functional mitochondria, and epigenetic changes. So this is how the epigenetic clocks are actually built. So so what you see are changes in the chemical modifications that control which genes are expressed. So these, these aren't mutations in the DNA itself. They're modifications on top of the DNA that control which genes actually get turned on or turned off. And these epig- there are some, of, some epigenetic changes that, that change in characteristic ways with aging. So in that 50-year-old skin cell, we would see a different pattern of epigenetic changes than we would see in the 25-year-old skin cell, according to the epigenetic clocks. You could actually measure that, which means you're also going to see differences in which genes are turned on and which genes are turned off based on these epigenetic changes. And that means, what. so I don't, again, depending on whether people remember their central dogma of DNA to RNA to protein, so changes in gene expression are going to affect which RNAs are made, which are then going to affect which proteins are made. So what you're going to see are different different amounts of different proteins, but in general, a trend towards dysregulation, meaning that the system isn't functioning as efficiently or optimally in that 50-year-old skin cell as the 25-year-old skin cell. Now, maybe if depending on the, the, the state of the cell, and if you were to go even over, older, like say a 75-year-old, what you might actually see is that cell is becoming senescent or has already become senescent. And when cells go from non-senescent to senescent, there's this kind of fundamental shift where they switch on to this pro-inflammatory state. So they start giving off all of these inflammatory cytokines. And that contributes to a lot of the increase in inflammation that we see with age. Senescent. If... I think that might come up again when we talk, if we talk about senolytics, um, what, what is a senescent cell? Right. So a senescent cell, I think the easiest way to think about this is there are, there are normal cells which are functioning and doing what they're supposed to. So they're doing their job. There are many ways that a cell can become dysfunctional. Um, one way a cell can become dysfunctional is to start dividing uncontrollably. And that goes down the path towards cancer. 
there are mechanisms in place that are supposed to protect us from getting cancer. One of those is something called apoptosis or apoptosis, depending on how you like to define it. That means the cell kills itself. So that's a really effective anti-cancer mechanism. Instead of becoming cancer, the cell commits suicide. The other main anti-cancer mechanism that we have at the cellular level is senescence. And what that means is, is this senescence pathway engages, which puts the brakes on cell division. Okay, so it can't become cancerous because it can't divide anymore. It doesn't die, but it stops dividing. And that would be great if that's all these senescent cells did. Turns out, though, that these senescent cells stop doing their job, so they're not doing what they're supposed to anymore. But it's worse than that because they start giving off these signals, these inflammatory signals, mostly inflammatory signals, that actually then cause other cells around them to become dysfunctional. And what has, what has emerged over the last 10 to 15 years is that as animals get older, there is this increase in the number, the burden of these senescent cells, and they're giving off these inflammatory signals, which then cause the cells around them to become dysfunctional. Probably the most potent thing that these, these inflammatory signals do is cause our stem cells to stop functioning the way they're supposed to, which contributes to a lot of the tissue decline that we see with aging. The other consequence of this chronic inflammatory state is an increased risk of cancers. Sort of paradoxically, this is an anti-cancer mechanism that actually increases the risk of cancer because of the signals these cells are giving off to surrounding cells. Okay, so before we get on to the interventions and, and what we can can do with regards to our lifestyle and potentially um, some of these exciting compounds that people are looking at, and this might be a silly question, but if we take that skin cell, for example, and you mentioned there um, the aspects or what's happening at a cellular level when we think about aging, there's DNA mutation and shortening of the telomere length, but a skin cell is turning over uh, relatively quickly. It might only be a few days old or, or a month old. Why can't the body just sense the damage, sort of go back to a, a central library and produce a, a new youthful cell each time? Yeah. So that, that's not that's actually a really, really good question. And and I think again, this this comes back to something I said before, which is that these these hallmarks aren't acting in isolation, right? This is connected in a network. So in the case of skin cells in particular, um, we don't express the enzyme that allows telomeres to be elongated, right? That's called telomerase. So even though the, the cell itself may only be a few weeks old, a few months old in this 50-year-old, it came from a progenitor cell that probably already had shortened telomeres. So it didn't start from zero in this particular case. Um, the same thing is true with DNA damage. We don't have any mechanism in our mitotic tissues outside of the germline to repair mutations that have already happened. So it's not starting from the pristine young state that where that where that cell derived from. And because these hallmarks are interconnected, shortened telomeres actually predispose the cell towards other types of damage. So there's 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 connections, for example between telomere state and mitochondrial function and gene expression. And the epigenetic marks that we were talking about as well are not reversed when that skin cell 
is sort of derived from its precursor cell, right? From the stem cell. Mm -hmm. So, so it's, so again, it's a good question, but the fact is that, that, that those cells don't start from zero. There's mm -hmm. already changes that have happened in the progenitor cell wow. with age. Now the question, and it's a good question is, you know, what if we could reverse those changes? And this is where this idea of reprogramming, which may come up later, comes in. There is a concept that has, that has gained popularity, which is that what if we could re reverse the epigenetic changes that have occurred in the progenitor cells with age? Would that be enough to take the entire tissue, for example, back to a youthful state? And people are testing that now. We don't, we don't know the answer. My speculation is that it probably won't because I don't believe that epigenetics are the only thing that's changing that's important with age in our in our bodies. But if epigenetic changes are in fact kind of the, the, at the, at the top of the hierarchy of the hallmarks of aging, then it might be possible by reversing only the epigenetic changes to actually restore all of these other functional parameters that are also degraded to really rejuvenate organs and tissues. Time will tell people are testing this right now. So when you say reprogramming the epigenome, is that, are we talking about changing gene expression within the cell? Is that what that would lead to? That's right. And so um, if you take reprogramming to its sort of ultimate, you can actually take differentiated cells. So fibroblasts, for example, that skin cell and reprogram them all the way back to a pluripotent state. So they completely lose their fibroblast identity. So it turns out that, that a lot of the developmental processes that, that, that allow for differentiation of cells and ultimately tissues and organs are largely mediated by epigenetic changes. Those very specific epigenetic changes then lead to certain genes getting turned on, which give the cell its identity. If it's going to be a heart cell, a, a myocyte or a skin cell, you know? So yes, we're talking about gene expression, but these defined epigenetic changes that go along with differentiation the first thing they do is turn on genes that then give that cell its identity. And you can reprogram cells all the way back to this undifferentiated or dedifferentiated state. Now, you don't want to do that in an adult organism for obvious reasons. It becomes a ball of goo, basically. But, but in principle, yeah, you could, you could reprogram all the way back to the dedifferentiated state. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's where my mind was going. Like, What would be the purpose of, say, reprogramming a skin cell to be a neuron? Well, you could certainly think of of medical applications, you know, for for example, the idea that, you know, um, if you could take a cell from your body and reprogram any cell, you could take a skin biopsy, for example, and reprogram it back to a different cell type and then use that cell type for a medical purpose in your own body. That gets around a lot of the challenges we have with immune rejection and things right. like that. So I think in the future, there are actually a lot of potential medical applications that this technology can be used for. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if we think about lifestyle and interventions or sort of everything as a, a, a big umbrella here, what, what are the buckets? What are the different buckets that you like to think about with regards to what we can do or what science is looking at that might be possible in the future that can act on these hallmarks of aging? Sure. So, so I, I wish I could say I, I had anything profound to tell you, but my buckets are the same as everybody else's buckets, I think, at least more or less, right? So we all know 
that diet is super important. I think we could spend we could spend two hours talking about the evidence for different types of diet and nutrition in the biology of aging, because that uh, of the big buckets, that's the one that's been studied the most in the biology of aging. But diet is is obviously really important. Exercise, physical activity is super important. That's actually been understudied in the biology of aging, and we can talk about that. Sleep is super important. That's been even more understudied in the biology of aging. Um, and that, I think, is an area where there's actually a lot to be done, because we understand very little but we know that sleep is fundamentally tied into the biology of aging. And, and, and I think there's a lot, a lot to be done there, you know, and then there's this, this fourth bucket or fourth or fifth, depending on how you want to define it, which really, I think boils down to wellness and happiness and fulfillment and, you know, all, all of the things that go into that, which most of us biologists don't spend any time thinking about. We should probably spend more time thinking about it because oftentimes in our own lives, it's the thing that gets neglected. But I think if you want to have, if you want to maximize your health span as a human being, you got to pay attention to, to all of these things. And, and I think they all ultimately tie into the biology of aging in different ways. But like I said, the one where people have studied it the most is in the realm of, of diet. And then, you know, and then I would put on top of that some of the things like pharmaceutical interventions, uh, uh, nutraceutical interventions, there's, that's a lot more speculative. And I think there's, there's, there's certainly, it's certainly possible to modify the biology of aging with small molecules, no question about it. We're at a stage now, though, where we don't have a ton of data in humans. And so it's a lot of speculation, honestly, a lot of noise, some snake oil. And it's really hard for people to know, you know, what's real, what's not real, who do I trust, who do I believe? Um, I, I hope that gets clarified in the next, hmm. you know, coming years. But, uh, but right now it's really hard. I mean, like, I don't even know what to believe half the time. Um, so, uh, so anyways, I, but I don't put that in like the, the, the four buckets, like get the four buckets in shape before you spend a lot of time worrying about whether you're going to take supplement X to target your biology of aging. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that you brought up happiness. Um, cause it kind of often gets left as, you know, it's, it's sort of tacked on at the end of, of these conversations, or if we speak about social isolation or loneliness, yeah. I think loneliness comes up quite a lot in the longevity, or there is at least some correlation data out there um, that looks at social isolation and, and loneliness. Do we do we understand? And I appreciate this might not have been researched um, in in great depth, but do we understand how things like being sad? Um, having anxiety or being lonely, being socially isolated actually affect the biology of aging? I'd say it's pretty pretty rudimentary. So there are definitely some studies and they, they're mostly correlative, which is kind of what you're restricted to, you know, when you're doing studies in humans, um, showing that people who are under high stress, high anxiety, depression, social isolation, do have some changes in the hallmarks of aging. Telomere shortening is the one I think that's been studied the most because it's pretty easy. You can measure telomere length in blood cells. And I, I, I think it's pretty clear that, that in, indeed, people who are subject to high levels of anxiety and stress and depression, on average, tend to have shorter telomeres, which we would associate with a faster rate of aging potentially or a higher biological age than their chronological age. What the mechanisms are underlying that, 
I, I think there's very little at this point that's been studied um, to, to really, you know, give us any concrete ideas. I think an interesting question, which could be studied maybe right now is, you know, how do these buckets interact with each other? In other words, you know, I think it's probably the case that people who are depressed and socially isolated are also more likely to be sedentary, mm. eat a poor diet. You know, how do these things interact and can you make up for one by, you know, by fixing the other? I, I think we we really haven't studied that in any in any great level of detail. Um, but I, I agree completely with you. And 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 and, I, and I'll admit I'm a <laughs> I'm a pretty recent convert to the happiness uh, train, but I'm on it now. Um, I think that is far more important than, than most people uh, appreciate. And, you know, and, and I, I, I like happiness because I think that really encapsulates social isolation, anxiety, sense of community, all of those things contribute to an individual sense of happiness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I can imagine there, I mean, even things like smiling and gratitude and being yeah. in, in awe of of the world or your physiology or, or just the incredible aspects of life that these all of these things must tie in and affect our physiology in some oh, no question about it yeah absolutely how do you feel about social media so often i think social <laughs> media can get painted in a, in a bad light and it probably has its pros and cons but if we think yeah. about from a social isolation point of view you could look at it a few ways one is uh, potentially it's reducing the amount of time that people are spending with friends and family in person. And the other is that it's connecting people to more people than ever before. How do you think about, I guess, um, do we, do we understand if online connection would have the same effect on, on our biology as face-to-face -face connection? So that, that's outside my area of direct expertise. So, so I don't want to talk with certainty about this. My guess is that it doesn't. I mean, I, I think, I think, so I think that online interaction certainly can, can play a, an important role, uh, particularly during the pandemic. I think it helped a lot of people, right? Because we couldn't interact in person, but I would be very surprised if once the data comes in, when people do the, 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 the very rigorous studies, I would be very surprised if we find that online interaction is anywhere near personal, interpersonal interaction. I know for myself personally, given the opportunity, I would much rather be doing this conversation with you in person mm -hmm. than I would online. I, I know for myself, I get a lot more out of those in-person interactions than I do the, the mm -hmm. online interaction. Don't get me long, wrong. I'm loving this, yeah, yeah. but you know, if, if all things were equal, right? I, I think that I've found personally that I get a lot more out of the, the in-person mm -hmm. interactions. And I think that's probably that's probably what the biology will tell us when, when we actually get to the end of the day. I think social media in general, it's like anything else in life. It's got its, its pros and its cons. It can be used for good or for evil. Um, I personally have sort of a love hate relationship with things like Twitter. Uh, be, you know, I think it's got some positives to it, but it also can have some, some real negatives. And so I think, you know, we just need to, to, to be aware of how it's impacting us as individuals and take steps to make sure that it's not, it's it's not um, uh, causing a decline in our health, and that it's actually a good thing. Mm -hmm. And that kind of perhaps is a segue into something else I wanted to ask you about. Perhaps if we're spending more time on social media, we're spending less time outside in nature. And I'm curious if there's any data looking at getting outside. Um, 
within nature and, and how that affects aging. I know for myself, it tends to put me into a better mood. So is it the better mood yeah. that is going to be good for my biology or is it there's something sort of inherent about nature itself? Yeah, I, I think again, this is a little bit outside my my direct uh, ex expertise. So there may be data out there I'm not aware of. I think there is data certainly suggesting that uh, spending time outside in nature is correlated with better health outcomes in humans. I think those data are often very hard to disentangle from the likelihood that people are going to be more active when they're outside. They're less likely to be sedentary. They're less likely to be sitting at home eating a bag of Doritos or, you know, whatever your favorite ultra processed food is. So is it the simple fact of being in nature, uh, the decrease presumably in stress hormones and anxiety that, that I think for many people go along with being outside, or is it, you know, simply the fact that they're being active and, and, and not eating junk on average, that's hard to know. Um, this is an area where, again, you know, I talked about how some of these buckets have been less studied in the biology of aging. I think for things like that, part of the reason why they're less studied is those are harder studies to do in laboratory animals. So the great power of laboratory animals is we can control variables and we can start to get towards mechanistic understandings. The weakness is that it's very hard to do those sorts of studies that involve, you know, wildly different environmental conditions and, and things like that in laboratory animals. So people haven't really, as far as I know, tried to ask those kinds of questions. Yeah. Which explains why there's been so much research on nutrition. Um, right. And, and to your point about doing these in person, I totally agree. And hopefully some, <laughs> at some point I can get, get to Seattle and we can, we can make that happen. Uh, you mentioned sleep before. So if we were to kind of just double click on that, and um, I think you mentioned there needs to be a lot more research into this, but what do we understand about sleep and the biology of aging with respect to uh, sleep quality or, or duration or other parameters? Sure. So I, it seems like I'm saying this a lot, but this is also outside my direct area of expertise. So I can, I'll, I'll talk about it because I know I know something about how how the biology of aging interacts with sleep, but I'm not a sleep expert, right? So I, I think that's important. And I don't, and, and honestly, I don't actually don't know of anybody who is what I would call truly an expert in both of those fields. That's why we need more people studying this because I think it's really important. So, so what we know, of course, is that sleep quality is Im important for a bunch of different things, but particularly cognitive health. That seems pretty clear in humans that poor sleep quality is strongly associated with a higher likelihood of cognitive dysfunction and ultimately dementia. Um, and we we have some understanding, we think, at least it's rudimentary, but we're starting to understand how that works and and the importance of deep sleep and clearing damage from the brain and things like that. We also know in humans and in mice, and in other animals, I, I believe that that quality of sleep declines with age. And I actually don't know much about the mechanisms there. It's possible that the mechanisms there are starting to be understood and, and that's not right in my wheelhouse. So I'm not aware, but I don't think we really have a great understanding for why sleep quality degrades with age. We know something about it. For example, in humans, we know that hormonal changes, particularly in women that go along with menopause, contribute to changes in sleep quality. But I think it's more fundamental than that. And I think there is there are underlying, you know, I think the hallmarks of aging, for lack of a better way of saying it, are contributing to changes in the brain, 
changes presumably in circulating factors that are actually causing a degradation of sleep quality with age. And then that sort of becomes a vicious cycle, right? You have these age-related changes in sleep quality that lead to poorer sleep that then presumably accelerate the at least the cognitive effects associated with poor sleep, and it probably feeds on it on itself. Um, so, so that's kind of I, I think that's a pretty good place to to leave it, um, and and just say I think a lot more needs to be done to really understand those mechanisms. The other thing that I think is going to be super interesting is whether or not interventions that target the biology of aging can improve sleep quality. And there's some evidence in mice for caloric restriction, at least, having a positive impact on sleep quality in the context of aging. So again, that supports the idea that there is a role for the biology of aging in the decline in sleep quality that goes along with age. If you modify that biology in a positive way, you have a positive impact on sleep quality. Interesting. What does Matt Cable in do with regards to to sleep or what's the goal is there a goal in terms yeah. of duration and are there things you're doing to try and encourage better quality sleep yeah so first thing i'll say is i'm i feel very fortunate we talked about gratitude i am very grateful for the fact that i'm one of those people who at least so far i haven't haven't really struggled with with sleep and i know a lot of people do so i'm very i'm very happy about that but i have just within the last last year or so started to really make efforts to be more consistent in the way that I approach sleep. And what I mean by that is, you know, trying to go to bed at about the same time every night, try to get up at about the same time in the morning. I cut way back. So I've, I've been wearing an aura ring now for, for several months. Um, and, and at least for me, what the aura ring has been most useful for is actually being able to understand my personal sleep quality. And I think like many people, the one thing I've talked to lots of people that use an aura ring and the one constant seems to be the thing you learn when you have an aura ring, if you drink alcohol at all, is that alcohol trashes your sleep quality. Mm -hmm. So I've made an, I've made a concerted effort to cut way back on the amount of alcohol that I consume. And that's had the expected effect on my sleep quality. So, so that's about all I do. Again, I'm pretty fortunate that I haven't had to, tr to really spend a lot of time, you know, making other efforts to improve my sleep quality, because that seems to be enough, at least for now. Mm -hmm. I think I recall a, a New Year's post of yours that meant yeah. uh, a, a good yeah. start to the year, a good sleep and an alcohol-free yeah. night. Um, Absolutely. I know myself after even just one glass of red wine, my sleep um, quality doesn't seem to be as good and heart rate seems to be higher overnight. So it's it's incredible what a small amount can, can do. Um, exercise. What do we, what do we understand about the the types of exercise or how much exercise we, we do and how that affects these different um, aspects of aging at a, at the, at the cellular level. Yeah. So exercise is really interesting. Cause I think if you talk to most people who are on the, the pure biology side, biology of aging, you know, what you'll often hear is that exercise doesn't increase lifespan, but it increases health span that comes from mouse studies where people have tried to test the effect of exercise on lifespan in mice. And, and the data, I mean, the data do fit that interpretation where you don't actually see a big effect on average lifespan from, from forced wheel running in mice. I think though we have to be careful about the way we interpret that because 
it's very hard to do well-controlled exercise studies in mice, and you really can't do studies of different types of exercise in mice. So, so I wouldn't extrapolate that to humans. And part of the reason why I'm, I'm, you know, very hesitant to extrapolate that to humans is I think in people, it's pretty clear that, that exercise does increase average lifespan. Um, now you could, you could make an argument that, well, really what you're doing is pushing average lifespan up closer to that species maximum. That probably is true, but I think exercise is certainly as important as diet uh, or they're very close to each other in terms of both health span and longevity mm-hmm. in people. It's just that the, the way this has been studied in the laboratory, I think is, you know, tends to lead to the interpretation that exercise is somehow fundamentally different than diet in the way it impacts the biology of aging. And I would argue that's probably more about some of the idiosyncrasies of mouse models than it is really about the biology of aging. Now at the, at the cellular molecular level, we do know that exercise impacts at least some of the the hallmarks of aging. And this hasn't really been studied in great depth uh, in many cases, but for sure, exercise improves mitochondrial function in the context of aging. And again, mitochondrial dysfunction is one of the hallmarks of aging. I think there's pretty good evidence that at least not, not acutely, but chronically exercise reduces inflammation, increases in sterile inflammation are one of the major consequences of the hallmarks of aging and one of the real drivers of aging phenotypes. Exercise has effects on autophagy, which we know is important for cleaning up uh, aggregated proteins, which are one of the hallmarks of aging. So it's clear that exercise impacts on the biology of aging. Now, we may want to talk about this. There's a lot of confusion about what seems on the surface to be a paradox, which is the role of mTOR in exercise and the role of mTOR in aging. We can dive into that if you want to. But I think in general, it's pretty clear that exercise has a has a positive impact on many of the hallmarks of aging, maybe not all of them, but on many of the hallmarks of aging, even in the animal studies where we didn't see a big increase in lifespan in mice. Yeah, I think it's worth double clicking on that. This idea that uh, activating mTOR at all is deleterious and that might yeah. even, uh, come up again when we talk about protein or amino acids in the nutrition. Yeah. Base. Yeah. So I think a lot of this conversation, I would say in some cases, confusion around uh, mTOR and exercise stems from the fact that um, in the biology of aging, we have learned over many, many studies from many, many different labs that turning down mTOR or inhibiting mTOR is associated with increased lifespan and increased health span in, in every animal model where this has been studied. Uh, it turns out in the exercise world, uh, mTOR has been studied completely independently, um, mostly in the context of muscle function. So in order to build new muscle, you have to turn up mTOR. And, and so there's, there's this apparent paradox, which is that the, the direction that increases lifespan and slows aging of turning down mTOR is opposite the direction mm-hmm. of building muscle. And we know that maintaining muscle is really, really important in the context of healthy aging. So, so on the surface, it seems like, it seems like that's, that's a paradox and it's counterintuitive. Um, and I, and I have to admit, we don't completely understand this, but I think it's important to appreciate a, a couple of uh, things. One is that mTOR is not an on-off button. Um, so we're talking about decreasing the activity or increasing the activity. We're not talking about going from 100 to zero. And mTOR activity actually oscillates throughout the day. 
depending on when you eat. So mTOR is activated by amino acids. So if you eat, you're going to turn up mTOR. It's also different in different tissues. And I think that's often not really appreciated. So I think this idea that, um, that inhibiting mTOR in the context of increasing lifespan and slowing aging is irreconcilable with activating mTOR to build, to build muscle um, really just reflects uh, our current lack of understanding of the complexity of the system, of the biology. My intuition is that with age, what we're seeing is a gradual increase in this mTOR oscillation. So there's a gradual hyperactivation of mTOR in many tissues throughout the body, which is driving a lot of the chronic inflammation and accelerated aging. And uh, so that might be okay in muscle, but it's counterproductive everywhere else. Mm -hmm. um, and when we treat with rapamycin, for example, what we're doing is not impairing muscle function. We're sort of restoring the homeostasis of this gradual increase in, in mTOR activity. Okay, so it's it's much more complex than this idea of if you activate mTOR, you're in muscle growth mode, but that's coming at the expense of longevity of how long you're going to live. So I, I think that's correct. And I think it's important to appreciate when you say do resistance training, you may activate mTOR transiently in your muscles, right? To allow for that new muscle growth, but you're probably not activating mTOR in your heart and your brain and your liver, right? And, and uh, likewise, when you take rapamycin, you're probably inhibiting mTOR transiently in in most tissues, maybe all tissues, but the degree to which you're inhibiting mTOR is going to be different in different tissues. And I think the real, uh, the, the really important piece of data to appreciate here is that at least in mice taking rapamycin, what you see is a protection against the age-related loss of muscle. So we know that sarcopenia, muscle loss, is a common feature of aging in mice, in dogs, in people. Rapamycin, which is an inhibitor of mTOR, is actually protective against sarcopenia in both mice and rats. We don't know yet in people, but that certainly that certainly demonstrates that you can inhibit mTOR with rapamycin and preserve muscle function and muscle mass. So it's not the case that necessarily inhibiting mTOR with rapamycin is going to lead to a loss of function. That much, that loss of muscle, that much seems rock solid. That does seem counterintuitive though, or is that, is the inhibition of mTOR occurring outside of muscle cells? My understanding was that mTOR is, is the growth pathway and would be important for building and preserving muscle. So I guess from a mechanistic point of view, how would you explain what's happening there with rapamycin? Yeah. So I can speculate. I, the real answer is we don't know, <laughs> um, uh, but I can speculate. So, so yeah, you're absolutely right that you need mTOR activation to build new muscle, right? But there are really two, two pieces to sarcopenia. There's how much new muscle is being built and how much existing muscle is being lost, right? And of course there's turnover and that adds an additional layer of complication, but you can, you can think of it as a new muscle, versus existing muscle being lost. So it's probably the case when, when you take rapamycin or we give rapamycin to a mouse, at the time of dosing, there is an in, a decrease in mTOR activity in muscle and in other tissues, because the drug is gonna get to all tissues of the body. Is that enough to cause a loss of muscle? 
Probably not. And I think the data are pretty clear on that. Is that enough to blunt the growth of new muscle if you were to go lift weights? I don't think we know the answer to that yet. It might a little bit. But in the context of aging, it's the loss of muscle and the infiltration of adipose into muscle, I think, that's really driving sarcopenia. And I think what we're learning is that rapamycin protects against that. How is it protecting against that? It's going to be complicated. I'm sure it involves the hallmarks of aging. I'm sure it involves a, uh, a, a profound anti-inflammatory effect of rapamycin that is attenuating the muscle loss that goes along with aging. And the last thing I'll say on this, and again, this is, this is my personal speculation, but I, I, I think there's a pretty good chance it's right, is we know that it becomes harder to build new muscle with age. Mm -hmm. So a 75 year old that goes into the gym and lifts weights can still build muscle, but it's not going to be as easy as it is for a 25 year old. And there are lots of reasons for that. There are hormonal reasons for that. But I think part of it probably also is the chronic inflammatory state of that 75 year old's body. I speculate that rapamycin, we know it can have an anti-inflammatory effect in that context. And I speculate that that might actually be beneficial in the context of building new muscle. So again, I think the situation is very complicated. And the way I would, the way I would frame it right now is it may be that if you were to take rapamycin in the, in the context of your existing resistance training workout, that you would gain new muscle more slowly. That's certainly possible. I, I'm very doubtful that it would cause you to lose muscle, but we don't know for sure. And that's why we need somebody to do these clinical trials that have been talked about looking at the combination of rapamycin in the context of resistance training in healthy adults. I looked at the latest stats and um, I think it's 70% of adults fail to meet the resistance training guidelines and maybe 60% or so do zero resistance training at all so there's there's a yeah. lot of i guess upside or opportunity there just from the way that we're, we're living our lives before we even think about a compound like rapamycin yeah and i i mean that's a it's a sobering statistic um and i think you know the reasons for that are obviously multifactorial but um yeah i, I think if we could do something about that obviously there are opportunities to have a huge impact on on health and longevity of a large fraction of the population. You know, unfortunately, again, I think sometimes progress in my field gets presented as an alternative to a healthy lifestyle. Um, I can't rule that out. Like I can't rule out the possibility that, that rapamycin or maybe, you know, something in the future could offset some of the negative consequences of a sedentary lifestyle, eating a poor diet, sleeping poorly, all of that. I don't think we have any evidence to support that. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend that people hold out hope for a magic pill that's going to allow you to live a, a poor lifestyle and get all the benefits of a healthy lifestyle. Mm -hmm. What's a typical exercise regime or a week of exercise look like for you? Yeah, so this changes. I think like everybody, I'm I'm evolving and and you know, maybe one of the one of the first things I'll say is I think one of the most important things about being able to to maintain an active lifestyle is finding activities that you enjoy that you can do over the long term. And sometimes that means changing, right? Finding new things to do. So right now for me, I, um, I, I do resistance training three or four times a week. I focus on core movements, you know, squats, deadlift, bench press, 
uh, pull-ups. Um, I don't spend a lot of time on, on, you know, isolation. Um, and I, I do cardio three or four times a week, you know, it depends a little bit on the, the weather. So here in Seattle, we're in the gray rainy time of year. So, um, more of my cardio is inside on an elliptical, but when we can, my wife and I love to get out and go hiking. We're fortunate to live up in the foothills of the mountains where there's lots of, of hiking to do outside. Um, you know, I've, I've kind of shifted away from things like basketball. I used to play basketball a lot. As I get older, the risk of injury goes up. Uh, I, I try to avoid injury when I can. Um, so I'm trying to shift away to things that, you know, uh, aren't quite so hard on, on the body, but I really love competitive stuff. If I can ever get a group of buddies together to play touch football, that's, that's kind of my, my love, but, um, you know, really it involves getting out and, and, uh, you know, doing a variety of stuff. I go hit, hit golf balls on the driving range with my son when it's a sunny day and, um, you know, try to get outside and do stuff when I can. Yeah. I've been recently been playing uh, a game called Padel, I think is how you pronounce it. That's I say paddle, but the Europeans ah, call it Padel. Ah. <laughs> and in, in America, I think they call it pickleball. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we live right across the street uh, from a park with a, a basketball court and uh, we see people out there playing pickleball mm-hmm. quite a bit. So we haven't gotten out there and done it ourselves, but uh, let's give it a try. Yeah, no, it's certainly it's a, it's a fun way to get the body moving. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, let's talk about food. So I guess when food comes up, there's you mentioned uh, calorie restriction. So there's how much you eat. Um, there's a lot of talk about what you eat and then there's plenty of talk about fasting and fasting mimicking diets and more so uh, when you eat the timing of that so maybe we can step through these three things and i guess at a a high level before we double click on each of them what what would you how would you order them in terms of most influential on aging to least yeah so i i think the most important thing to say here is you, you sort of, when you have this discussion, you sort of have to make a decision up front. Are you going to be guided by what has been done in laboratory rodents and laboratory animals? Or are you going to be, are you going to put more weight on what we think we know about human nutrition? Because I would say they don't always line up. And so, so what I can tell you is that in laboratory studies, in mice and rats, most of this recently has been in mice, historically in rats, it's pretty clear that caloric restriction. And by that, I mean, an across the board, all macros reduction in calories can significantly increase lifespan up to about 50 or 60% in certain genetic backgrounds. So this is, this is the, the largest single intervention effect on lifespan that's out there. And it's, you know, ballpark, but roughly linear. And what I mean by that is a 20% restriction in calories gives you about a 20% increase in lifespan. A 50% restriction in calories gives you about a 50% increase in lifespan. That's been shown over and over and over and over again. The thing that often doesn't get talked about is that that doesn't work in all strains. So there are some genetic backgrounds where you don't get any effect from caloric restriction. And there are some genetic backgrounds that are actually harmed by the same caloric restriction regimen. So a 40% reduction in calories might give you a 40% increase in lifespan in one strain and a 20% decrease in lifespan in another strain. So that's the case in mice. The same thing has been seen in fruit flies, in nematode worms, and even in single-celled yeast. There's a genetic component to the effect that a given caloric restriction regimen has on lifespan. So 
That's one important thing to appreciate. The other important thing to appreciate is that in the rodent studies, intermittent fasting is almost fully coupled with caloric restriction. And what I mean by that is that the vast majority of caloric restriction studies where they say restrict by 40% are done by only feeding the animals four times a week instead of feeding them seven times a week. Mm. So they are intermittent fasting studies built into that. People have tried to go back and ask, if you only calorically restrict without intermittent fasting, what's the effect on lifespan? The answer is you still get an effect on lifespan, but it's smaller than if you intermittently fast. Then you can ask the question, what if you intermittently fast, but allow them to eat the same number of calories? And there the lifespan effect pretty much goes away. There might be a tiny, tiny effect, but it pretty much goes away if you allow them to eat the same number of calories. In other words, they're eating twice as much on the days they're being fed. So this is a little bit of a myth that intermittent fasting in and of itself has potent pro-longevity benefits. Intermittent fasting when coupled with caloric restriction has potent pro-longevity benefits, at least in certain strains. Intermittent fasting in an isocaloric context has either small or no benefits. That's a little bit unclear because it's kind of hard to do those studies in a very controlled way where you completely keep them completely isocaloric. But at best, it's a small effect, maybe a 5% effect on lifespan. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of my take on the animal studies right now. The one thing I'll add to that is there have been some recent studies that are pretty interesting, which are now trying to couple circadian rhythms, so time of day that the animals are fed with the effects of caloric restriction. And it's still pretty early, but I think what we can say with some confidence is that if mice are kind of flipped in their circadian rhythm and when they get the food, that tends to offset the benefits of caloric restriction. So part of the caloric restriction effect is tied up with when the food is given. But again, still pretty early. I don't think people really have a good understanding of what that means or, or how it works. So I'll stop there. That, those are, that's kind of my take on the animal caloric restriction studies without even getting into you know low protein, amino acid, all that stuff. But that's kind of my take on caloric restriction. Does the importance of the the timing of the food or the distribution of the food relative to circadian biology, does that explain or potentially explain the differing results in the two primate studies that looked at caloric restriction? Oh, that's a good question. I I don't I don't know the answer to that. I don't I don't recall that being one of the differences between the two protocols. But I actually don't. I actually don't know the answer to that. If they fed them at different times of the day, there were many other differences in those studies as well. But yeah, it's possible that 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 played a role. And with regards to, you mentioned before that caloric restriction doesn't lead to increased lifespan in all models. There are some examples where it's shortened lifespan, and, and so here we're talking about animal data. So how do we translate yeah. this to humans and know, is there any clues that we have with regards to how caloric restriction would affect aging in humans, both from a lifespan perspective, but also from the perspective of vitality and sort of how, how well you're living? I'll say one thing out up front, uh, which is that in mice, again, the genetic background plays a role in whether or not caloric restriction extends lifespan. There's no question in my mind that genetics will play a role in how humans respond to caloric restriction, right? So 
I think that there, I mean, that's just sort of a fundamental, anybody, anybody who understands genetics will agree with that. That's, and it's almost not worth saying, but I think it's important to say, because I don't think everybody gets this. The same diet is going to be different in you than in me, because we have different genetics and we have a different environment. It might be small differences. It might be big differences, but it will be different. And that's going to be true for the effects of caloric restriction. So what do we know about caloric restriction in humans in the context of aging biology? And again, you know, this, this is always the case with human studies. The data are not as compelling as they're going to be in animal studies because we can't really do these in the, the most controlled ways. There have been a few controlled caloric restriction studies that have been done that are pretty good. The, the, the best is uh, a group of studies in this consortium called CALERIE, C-A-L-E-R-I-E, if people are interested. This is a series of controlled calorie restriction studies, some of them built in exercise, some of them were pure caloric restriction that looked at the effects of um, caloric restriction and activity on health markers in people. And, and they ranged from short, like a few months. And, uh, but I think their longest was actually a full two year study where people were given defined diets of, of known caloric content. And I think the take home messages from those studies um, are pretty clear. If you're overweight or obese, most of the health markers that we are going to associate with future health outcomes, most of these are the common blood markers that we sort of already talked about, uh, are going to go in the right direction, right? You're going to lose weight and and your your biomarkers are going to go in the right direction. Not shocking, but you know that it, it, it's also nice to see. That's the data. Um, even in people who don't start overweight, on average, you do see, an improvement in these in the biomarkers, okay, and a reduction in things like inflammatory markers. So that doesn't mean those people aged biologically more slowly necessarily. It doesn't mean that we reversed aging, but it is suggestive that we have improved the health profiles of people through a relatively long-term modest caloric restriction of something like 20, 20%. Okay. So that's kind of what we know at this point in terms of in terms of health outcomes in in people on controlled caloric restriction. What do we what else do we know? We know that that some people actually have psychological problems when they try to restrict calories, right? So I think there are some potential side effects here that often aren't appreciated from, you know, attempts to lose weight, deprive yourself, restrict calories. So I think it's going to be a very individual uh outcome when we when we start talking about you know significant levels of caloric restriction in humans and that's and I and I and I I call that out explicitly because we don't capture that in the mouse mouse studies right we don't capture any of the psychology any of the social complexities that go around food uh, in human populations that I think can come into play when we talk about caloric restriction in, in humans but I would say on average, it does seem to be the case that for many people, maybe most people, you can improve biomarkers that are often associated with health by moderate caloric restriction, even in people who aren't considered overweight or obese. Mm -hmm. At the at the start, you said it's important for us to define things um, and understand the language that we're using here. I think sometimes when when caloric restriction comes up, there's this idea that you can just do it for the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, but 
I'm sort of, I'm thinking about that from the practical nature and, and surely there's a point where it becomes unhealthy if you're continually in a, uh, a calorie deficit or restricted state. Um, so are we talking about here the benefit being once like reducing your body weight down to a quote unquote sort of healthy body weight. And then at that point you're at sort of calorie maintenance. Um, you know, what is calorie restriction by definition? What are we talking about here? Yeah. So it's a great question. So again, I think we can, we can, we can take some clues from the animal studies, right? The mouse studies where those mice don't continue to lose weight throughout their entire life. Um, so they do reach a maintenance weight. So again, the way those studies are typically done is you measure what they would eat if they're given complete access to food. That's called ad libitum. They get as much food as they want. Then you just back off on that by a certain percent, let's say 40%. And that's what they get. And they go through a period of a pretty dramatic weight loss. But then of course, you know, they plateau at some point where it's just maintenance for the rest of their life, but they do have a smaller body size, you know, throughout adulthood than obviously than the mice that are fed ad, ad libitum. And I think the same thing, you know, has to be true in people. You're right. Absolutely. That if you kept reducing caloric intake more and more and more to continue to lose weight, at some point that's going to clearly become detrimental to health. Um, but I think this question of even if you do a maintenance weight at a lower caloric intake over the long run, is that net beneficial is still a little bit unclear. And I, and, and I think the obvious answer is, you know, it's going to depend somewhat on what that level of maintenance weight is, what's the body composition at that maintenance weight, and what's your individual genetic makeup in the context of that mm -hmm. body composition and body weight. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think we just, we have very little real information to do this in any sort of targeted or personalized way to say, at least I'm not aware of any data where we could say for you, yep, 135 pounds is where you want to be. And so we're going to put you on a caloric restriction diet until you get to 135. And then we're going to keep you there. And we want you to be X percent body fat. Like, I don't think we really, I don't think we really know at this point how to do that in a personalized way. I think we're going to talk a little bit about this. I think the blueprint that, that Brian Johnson, you know, has sort of popularized um, is one way to approach that, which is to say, okay, well, let's look at a panel of biomarkers that we think are telling us something about current health status, future risk of disease, and let's try to get you to a caloric intake and a body weight that optimizes those biomarkers. A huge number of assumptions built into that, but it is at least a rational way to start to approach that question of, you know, what's the right, what's the right body weight? What's the right caloric intake mm -hmm. for you? Of course, that 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 ignores composition of the diet altogether, which is going to be important as well. You spoke there about fasting and and when you sort of adjust for total calories, there might be a small effect. What about this idea that you know, so periodically doing an extended fast or a fasting mimicking diet? Is there any evidence that that type of protocol can? Um, can affect like reprogramming of the cell going back to what we were talking about earlier or impact any of these hallmarks of, of aging? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think there's definitely evidence that, so, so, a uh, 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 fasting mimicking diet is really just caloric restriction. It's kind of a fancy name for eating less calories. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely 
definitely good evidence that at least prolonged fasting has a pretty potent anti-inflammatory effect, even fasting mimicking diet. So periodic caloric restriction for a period of a week or two has anti-inflammatory effects. You can boost autophagy. You can restore mitochondrial, some level of mitochondrial function. I think all of those things are, are definitely true. Um, I think there's a little bit less understood about the consequences of uh, post-fasting rebound. And again, this is where I think it's going to be individual, right? So if you were to do you know, a, a, a prolonged fast, you're going to lose some weight, you're going to lose some muscle. So I think that's important to pay attention to. Again, in the context of aging, like one of my number one priorities is lose as little muscle as you possibly can and build muscle while you can. So I worry a little bit about prolonged fasting in the context of muscle loss if you don't do something to get that muscle back. Um, that's a personal concern of mine. But I think it's also going to be somewhat, it's going to be somewhat individual in the way that that, what that person does after the fast and do they go back to the same body weight that they were at before? Do they maintain some level of weight loss? I think the like that the health outcomes are potentially going to be very different depending on you know how the person approaches that sort of in an overall long-term nutritional strategy. So I, I absolutely believe that for some people, periodic fasting can can have significant benefits, particularly if it helps people get to a maintenance weight that's more healthy than where they're at right now or stay at a maintenance weight that's more healthy than where they are right now. Is that something that you practice or focus on with your own eating? I don't. No. In fact, I, I mean, I sort of recognize in myself that um, that I don't think fasting is a, a, a great thing for me, <laughs> particularly prolonged fasting. And again, we I also talked about, you know, this, this question about uh, muscle uh, loss and muscle maintenance. And, you know, I'm at a phase right now where I'm doing what I can to build uh, muscle. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to like become a bodybuilder, but I want to do as much as I can. So I'm 52. I just turned 52 yesterday. I want to do as much as I can this phase in my life to make sure that I'm functioning physically at a high level when I get to the point where it becomes very difficult to build new muscle. And so I'm focusing more on that at this point. And I really don't want to do anything that's, that's going to potentially sidetrack that. Mm -hmm. Happy birthday for yesterday. Thank you. Um, <laughs> that, that kind of brings us nicely to what you eat and particularly protein, uh, amino acids. And these come up quite a bit in the conversation around longevity. And I had Don Lehman on the show a few months ago now, and we spoke about some of the studies looking at protein restriction and amino acid restriction. I guess there's some idea right. out there that if you restrict protein or you restrict particular amino acids like methionine, for example, that this could lead to improvements in lifespan. And, and I'll get you to speak about the research that this has kind of come from. I know that you've, you've written a great paper. I think it was published in Science that covered a lot of this. But one of Don's concerns, and it kind of speaks to something that you just mentioned earlier with regards to, to fasting, was that in a lot of these studies, he seemed to think that when there was protein restriction or amino acid restriction, that it was hard to disentangle that from caloric restriction. So I guess I'm, what I'm asking you here is from the animal data that we, we do have, do we see a benefit with protein or particular amino acid restriction independent of caloric restriction. 
Yeah. So the protein restriction literature is very is very tough in in that area because many of the studies are in fact caloric restriction uh, and protein restriction, but there are also several where it seems pretty clear to me at least that at least in some cases you can extend lifespan in a mouse through protein restriction, and yet they're eating as much, maybe even more than the mice that are not protein restricted. Um, that's that's definitely true with uh, branch chain amino acid restriction, that you you can extend lifespan in a mouse without restricting calories by just restricting branch chain amino acids. That probably is at least in part through inhibition of mTOR, although there's there are other mechanisms that could be at play there as well. Um, so so it's it it is it does seem to be the case that it is possible to restrict certain amino acids and maybe protein altogether in a mouse and extend lifespan without also being caloric restriction. That hasn't been studied much in different genetic backgrounds. That's really, most of that data comes from a single mouse strain that's that's very commonly used called C57 black six. So we don't really know, go, this is going back to the caloric restriction, you know, genetic uh, response. We don't really know whether, particularly like branch chain amino acid restriction, would be beneficial across many different genetic backgrounds. But at least in that one genetic background, it seems pretty clear that you can extend lifespan through that sort of an, an intervention. Um, I think one thing that's important to appreciate though, is that in terms of quality of life and, and almost certainly quantity of life, um, sarcopenia is not as big of a problem in rodents as it is in people. So. I, I think we want to be a little bit careful about extrapolating from protein restriction studies in mice to assume that that's going to have a beneficial effect on people, because I think the relative importance of maintaining muscle mass during aging is just fundamentally different in people than it is in, in mice. Um, and so it may be the case that you can, in fact, tolerate if there are negative consequences on, on muscle mass and muscle function from protein restriction in mice, they can tolerate it better than people would, would be able to. And nobody is, as far as I know, is really studying that or trying to address that question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I mean, a, a, a mouse in a cage is a very different environment to a human and the, the demands of, of being a human out in, in the wild. I think most people can, can, that's right. can appreciate that. So with, with all of that in mind, what do you think about Volta Longo's work and, and I guess his view that one should sort of restrict protein in midlife? And this is based, I think, primarily but not exclusively um, on the observational data from, from NHANES, one of the papers that he published that, that, that showed increased mortality risk in midlife for those who are consuming higher protein. So his advice is before 60 or 65 to sort of take it a little bit easier on protein. And then once you get to 65, increasing your protein intake a little bit, that seems, I think a little bit different to what you've just, or, or perhaps what your um, advice is and what you're doing personally. Yeah, it's definitely different than, than what I'm doing personally. Um, I totally understand the rationale and, and that, that study that they did, I think was very interesting. And, and I think the way you summarized it reflects what they 
concluded from that study, which was that this is looking across an entire population now, right? A typical American population. Most of this data is probably from a decade or two ago. So again, you have to keep in mind that these epidemiological studies are based on data from people living in an environment that's different than what we're living in now. I think that's potentially important. And also not eating, they're eating a typical American diet, whatever that was at the time the study was done. But they're not eating what I would consider on average a healthy diet. I think we all can agree the typical American diet is not what we would consider a healthy diet. So it's 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 a it's a it's a different population that we're talking potentially about than than you or I or or many of your listeners. So in that context, what they found was that people who ate towards the lower end of the protein consumption spectrum up until about age 60, they said 65. If you look at the data, it's somewhere between 55 and 65. People eating less protein had a lower risk of cancer and a lower risk of all-cause mortality, lower risk of dying. Then once you get to that transition point, somewhere between 55 and 65, it went the other way and people eating the highest amount of protein had the lowest risk of dying. Um, And so that's where those recommendations come from. There's a couple things I would say about that. So one is, I already mentioned, these are not people who are already eating a healthy diet. So I think it's probably true that high protein combined with high fat and high sugar Hmm. is probably increasing your risk of cancer and your risk of dying. I don't think there's much evidence that higher protein, and this is where we also need to be precise. What do I mean by high protein? What does Walter mean by low protein, right? So we should put numbers on these things probably, but... I don't think there's much evidence that a higher than average protein consumption in people eating an otherwise healthy diet increases your risk of of cancer. I don't know of any data to support that. So that's just important to appreciate. The other thing I would say is the time in your life at which high protein seems to be associated with higher mortality is also the time when your risk of dying is very low. So you might be willing to tolerate a two or a threefold increased risk of dying if your risk of dying is 0.001%. If it's going to give you the likelihood of having better function, better muscle, better body composition later in life, you might be willing to do that trade-off. And that wasn't really something that they um, quantified, I don't think, in, in their paper. So that's something I, I, that I would, I would suggest is maybe important to consider. Yeah, the absolute sort of base rate of of dying. That's a, that's a really interesting thing I hadn't thought of. Which of course increases exponentially as you get older, right? Mm-hmm. So a twofold reduction in risk of death above 65 is going to be much bigger than a twofold increase in risk of death at 45. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's quantify it. High protein. Are you talking about 1.5, 1.6 grams per kilogram? Or are we talking about 1.2, 1.3 grams per kilogram being high <laughs> relative to the RDA of, of sort of 0.8 grams per kilogram. Yeah. So, right. So the first thing to say, um, I think most people appreciate this now, but it's it's worth saying, right? The RDA was developed as uh, the amount of protein. This was a bunch of sedentary men, right? That this study was done on. The amount of protein intake necessary to prevent uh, nitrogen imbalance, which is, you know, protein loss, right? Muscle loss. So, so it's really a, I would say it's a minimum, uh, minimum dietary allowance rather than what I, what it's, you know, called the recommended daily allowance. So in any case, I think that's important to appreciate. So if you're eating less than the RDA, there's a good chance that you are actually at the point where you're going to, going to lose muscle if you're active at all. Um, 
I, I, I have to be honest. I like, I don't know what the right number is. I don't think there is one right number. It's going to depend a lot on your activity level, what your goals are, what your total caloric intake is. Personally, I tend to shoot and I don't track this extremely precisely, although I've gotten, I do, I do track my macros more than I used to. You know, I tend to shoot for two X RDA uh, for protein consumption. I think that's, you know, about right. Maybe sometimes even a little bit higher. Um, but you know, I, I'm doing resistance training. I'm, I'm in the process where I'm trying to build muscle, not lose muscle. So, you know, that seems about right, about right to me. Um, but it's a guess. Like, I think we have to be honest. A lot of this stuff is just an educated guess at this point. Yeah. I, I mentioned a study to Volta that I thought was really interesting and I'm not sure if you've seen this, so feel free to, to not comment on it, but I thought it was interesting. It was looking at, um, how, protein intake affects IGF-1 levels because he spends a lot of time thinking about IGF-1. In the context of people, these were healthy males, I believe, healthy adult males doing resistance training or not. And what I found really interesting was that the group that was doing resistance training plus uh, increasing their protein didn't have the same increase in IGF-1 as the group who was just eating a lot of protein and not doing resistance training. Yeah, I, I actually haven't seen that study, but 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 it gets back to what I was alluding to before, which is that, and that's in the context of exercise. I think what else you're eating in your diet, along with high protein, probably plays a big role as well, both on the effects on IGF one and the potentially downstream effects on cancer that come from elevated IGF one. So yeah, context is super important here, and that's why again I think you know one size fits all recommendations are generally a bad idea because it's going to depend a lot on what the person's individual genetics are, what their lifestyle is like, how active they are, you know, all sorts of things are going to go into trying to figure out what's the mm. optimal nutritional strategy for, for an individual. Mm. I think we can make some guidelines, but again, people really need to be aware of their own biology and what's happening when they, when they, if, if your, if your goal is really to try to get to, you know, something closer to optimal health. Mm -hmm. How do you think about, I guess, food quality? So if we're, if we're coming back to this amino acid restriction or protein restriction sort of concept, one thing that I often think about when looking at that research is how important the, the source of that protein is. So what is the, yeah. the kind of protein package? And if, if we look at observational data, and I appreciate it's observational, so it's it's hard to draw concrete conclusions from it, but there is quite a bit of data, meta-analysis data looking at cohorts showing that people who are uh, consuming more plant protein, for example, tend to have lower total mortality and, and lower cardiovascular mortality. Um, and then if yeah. you look at the MPS muscle building um, research, you could make an argument that animal protein, um, or sp specifically certain isolated animal proteins, can be superior to isolated plant proteins, for example, there. So how do you think about all that? Because when I, when I think about it, I sort of land in this position where I'm, like you, I'm, I'm thinking about um, building and preserving muscle mass and that being a key indicator of longevity and trying to avoid um, sarcopenia. But I'm also thinking about longevity at the same time. So I kind of have this, well, I'm going to consume, you know, in the realm of similar to you, 1.5, 1.6 grams per kilogram of protein. I'm going to have a bias for plant protein so that it's coming packed with 
fiber and polyphenols and less saturated fat, for example. Am I thinking about that in, in the right way? I think the honest answer is, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, this is one of those areas where, um, it's, it's sort of frustrating, but you can find whatever answer you want to believe, right? This is where I think people's intrinsic biases tend to lead them to the answer that they, they already, they already think is correct. I, I, so first of all, I should say, I haven't, I haven't done a deep dive on this question of, you know, plant protein versus meat protein and all of the possible pros and cons of, of each um, because my shallow dive has convinced me that people are, are, you can find whatever you want out there. You can, you can, you can come to whatever conclusion you want to on that question. So I don't spend a lot of time worrying so much about, about that. I do think in the context of a healthy overall diet, you better be eating a lot of vegetables. Like that's, that's like, a, a staple of an overall diet. And so I think that, you know, you certainly don't want to get all your protein from meat. I don't personally, I don't think that's a good idea, but I don't really worry about it, honestly, um, much beyond that. So I, uh, I, 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 I like meat, I should say. So I'm biased towards believing that, you know, meat protein is a good source of protein. Um, but I don't, I don't spend a lot of time, you know, trying to, to, to say, okay, I want to get, 70% of my protein for plant sources and 30% for meat sources or, or, or go down that, that road. Maybe I should, maybe I should pay more attention to it. But, um, I think first order, you know, my view would be make sure you're getting enough protein for your, your needs, given your lifestyle. And then that's sort of a second order question that I don't know how important it is at this point. And so I'm not going to spend a ton of my time worrying about it cuz I'm not convinced that it's that it really moves the needle a lot in either direction if you're optimizing other aspects of your lifestyle and and your diet. So what do you think about some of the longevity populations that tend to eat more plant protein, the Okinawans, Sardinians, etc.? So it certainly could, right? I mean, I think but I think also it's not it's not only going to be about protein in those contexts, right? I mean, it, like Okinawa is a great example. That's a, that's a, a, a clear case of human caloric restriction, right? Where the Okinawans traditionally ate, I don't remember what the percent is, but it's something like 20% less total calories than mainland Japanese. So how much of it was dietary composition? How much of it was other aspects of lifestyle? And how much of it was total caloric intake is really hard to disentangle. Uh, in that context. So yeah, it, it probably played a role. Um, but there were so many things that are different there that it's hard to know, you know, how much, how much of a role it played. Um, so, you know, again, it's, it's that there isn't any, there isn't a lot of certainty, I think, when we try to look at these long lived populations and figure out, you know, what specifically about them led to their extreme longevity. Right. With respect to fruits and vegetables, um, you know, I think most people tend to agree that they're probably a good thing. You, you mentioned them before. What 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 evidence, I guess, would you point to that leads you to to kind of believe that these are important for longevity? And I say that because there are certain people online now saying that perhaps we shouldn't eat uh, any fruits and vegetables. So I guess what convinces you about fruit and vegetable consumption being good for longevity um, that you'd say is stronger data than, say, for example, the source of your protein? 
Yeah. So I, I mean, I think there's two things, there's two things to say here, right? One is that, um, I'm personally not a big believer in anybody who says to do something extreme, you know, like you should only eat meat. Like, like, I think, I think, you know, my personal view is you should have some level of a BS filter and that doesn't pass my BS filter. I think in my experience, you know, just looking historically, people who advocate for extreme lifestyles in general don't live all that long. Now, that's not a super scientific um, approach to the whole thing, but but that's sort of that's sort of the way I lean on on some of these, you know, but very extreme influencers that are that are out there. So so what's the? I mean, I think there's a huge amount of epidemiological data that diets high, particularly in vegetables. Um, are associated with a lower risk of a bunch of different age-related diseases and lower all-cause mortality. Are any of them perfect? No. But I think when you start to get, you know, a, a very large number of different epidemiological studies in different populations, um, it starts to become compelling. I think also you have to get your calories from somewhere. So, so, you know, so where are you going to get your calories from? I think there's no question, particularly vegetables tend to be high in, in nutrients, right? High in, in micronutrients and vitamins that we know are important, uh, for the number of calories that you get high in fiber, which is going to be important for your microbiome. So I think you start to get all of these arrows that, that are, you know, that are going in the right direction combined with the epidemiology and it becomes compelling. I can't point to mechanistic, I mean, I suppose I could, but it would be a little bit silly to point to mechanistic studies and say, this molecule in celery is, you know, targeting AMP kinase and doing this, right? But but I'm, I'm sure there are molecular connections there. It's, those things, again, are very hard to study because, you know, the way we do laboratory studies in, in rodents is, is, you know, those diets are completely different from the typical human diet. So it's very hard to focus in on one particular type of food, even a, even a relatively, you know, macro level of just leafy vegetables and test that in animal models and get to mechanistic studies. So we're sort of stuck with the imperfect human studies as they exist. But, but, but my feeling is that, you know, there are lots of different pieces of evidence that support the idea that a diet rich in nutritious vegetables in general is going to be good. Fruits, I think, are a little bit maybe where there's more of an area for um, for discussion. And you could find evidence, certainly some fruits, you know, uh, have a lot of sugar, a, a, a lot of uh, a high glycemic index fruits, you know, maybe those are not beneficial in some contexts. And this is where, again, it may be very personal. I don't know if you've ever done continuous glucose monitoring or not, but, you know, people wearing a CGM, two different people can have very different reactions to eating a banana, right? Some people, their blood glucose is going to spike. Some people are rock solid. So I think there certainly are some fruits that for some people, maybe you do want to avoid or at least cut, cut back on. But again, you also want to enjoy your diet, right? And so I think for a lot of people, for me, you know, I don't, I'm not a big cake or cookie person or donuts, but I like fruit. So I'm going to eat fruit sometimes. Like it's better than a donut, <laughs> you know? So it can get that sweet tooth without, you know, without going completely off the deep end. And again, I think we should be pragmatic in the way we approach when we approach our diet, because, you know, it's got to be something you can live with for the rest of your life. And, uh, and it shouldn't feel like work. <laughs> 
trying to figure out what you're going to eat, right? You should be able to enjoy the food that you're eating as well as have a healthy diet. Yes. Amen to that. I'm with you there. Um, one of the, the other kind of interesting uh, hypotheses that often gets brought up when discussing the benefits of fruits and vegetables, particularly with regards to aging, and this might be something we talk in a little bit if we get to resveratrol, but is that they're really rich in these polyphenol compounds that um, act as a kind of hormetic stressor. What are your views, if any, on polyphenols and the aging process from a, a mechanism point of view? Do you find them interesting? Yeah. So I think they're definitely interesting. I think, um, you know, the, 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 the way that they get talked about a lot in the popular media, uh, is uh, probably a bit ahead of where the actual data is both for, you know, general health benefits and in the, in the context of aging. I mean, it's absolutely true that many of these foods are rich in polyphenols. They're rich in a lot of different molecules. The, the actual role of these polyphenols in health benefits from those foods, I think is mostly unclear, but it gets talked about as if, you know, like you said, this hormetic stress idea and that they're beneficial from that perspective. Not a lot of real data to support that. It's been a, it's been a hypothesis that's been popularized, but is I think far from clear. The thing about polyphenols and particularly resveratrol is they're extremely dirty drugs. And what I mean by that is that they have many, many different targets within a cell that they impact biologically. So it's really actually kind of complicated to do very rigorous and mechanistic tests to determine, okay, this polyphenol is acting through this target to have this effect. Therefore, we can predict what the outcome is going to be because they're affecting so many, so many different things. Um, resveratrol is sort of a unique beast. And I, I have to admit, I have a, I have a, 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 a trust issue with resveratrol because, because a lot of the early data on resveratrol turned out to be not reproducible, which is, you know, sometimes a problem in science. And I spent a lot of my time trying to reproduce that early data and cleaning up that mess. And so I tend to approach literature on resveratrol with, with, with a lot of skepticism based on that personal experience. And so, you know, the things I say about resveratrol, you probably should take, you know, in that context. Mm -hmm. But again, there's no question that resveratrol has biological activity, targets many, many different proteins in the cell. What the benefits are going to be from supplementation with resveratrol, I think is completely unclear to me. I, I'm not... I'm not convinced there's really anything there, at least for the average person. Maybe for some people at very high doses, it can have some benefits. And I think there's some literature supporting that. But I think for the average person, there's not much reason to believe that that taking resveratrol as a supplement is going to have a net beneficial effect on health. Was the original hypothesis that resveratrol would act on CERT2? And is CERT2 a longevity gene? <laughs> Um, yes, the original hypothesis was that 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 resveratrol acted through SIR2. Um, so there are two problems with that. Um, one is that resveratrol doesn't actually extend lifespan. So that original paper was in yeast, and it was reported to extend lifespan by 70%, doesn't actually extend lifespan. Um, the second problem is that the activation of SIR2 by resveratrol turned out to be at least partially a test tube artifact. And that gets into a whole nother complicated story. I think it's fair to say that, that it still remains unclear 
whether resveratrol can activate sirtuins, which are the whole family of sirtu-like proteins, towards physiologically relevant substrates in a cell or in an animal. It might. I can't rule that out. But the, the initial study, I think it's pretty clear that was a test tube artifact of, uh, that it wasn't really activating SIR2 in yeast cells, and it didn't extend lifespan. So now, is SIR2 a longevity gene? I know where this is coming from because I've seen lots of Charlie's tweets on this. Um, yes, SIR2 is a longevity gene in yeast. No question about that. Everybody agrees with that. That data has been reproduced over and over and over again. I think the question of whether it's a conserved longevity gene, meaning do sirtuins affect longevity outside of yeast, you can find data to argue whichever side of that you want to you wanna argue. I think the answer is yes. I think sirtuins can modulate longevity in worms, potentially in flies, potentially in mice. Um, they do definitely act in the same network with TOR and AMP kinase and FOXO. So other proteins we know are important for longevity. So they act in that network. So it wouldn't be surprising if they could affect longevity. But I would also say, it seems clear to me, they are not particularly useful nodes in that network from a therapeutic perspective. Hmm. There aren't great drugs to modulate sirtuin activity in mammals. And so far, the studies where people have tried to genetically modulate sirtuins in mammals, with the exception maybe of SIRT6. So I know we're getting in the weeds a little bit, but in general, modulating sirtuin activity in mammals hasn't produced the longevity effect that people have, have hoped for. SIRT6, the data look interesting for. So that's one of the mammalian sirtuins. There, there are reports now that you can increase lifespan in mice through activating SIRT6. If those reports hold up, then yeah, I think you would have to argue that that at least SIRT6, which is a sirtuin, is a longevity gene in mammals. So you, TBD. How would you activate that SIRT6 gene? Yeah. So the way this has been done so far is genetically. So basically you overexpress this. So you put an extra copy of the SIRT6 gene into mice transgenically and you overexpress it. There are some small molecules that people are working on that are supposedly specific activators of SIRT6. I don't think anybody's done a longevity study with those yet. Would uh, terastilbene, I think that's how you pronounce it, does that fall into the same bucket as resveratrol and a supplement that you would say is probably not worthwhile from a, a longevity point of view? Yeah. So, so terastilbene is kind of talked about as a super resveratrol. It's structurally similar to res resveratrol. Um, so I don't know of any great data showing that terastilbene can increase lifespan in laboratory animals, in, in mice in particular. Um, so what is the rationale for terastilbene as a longevity drug? I'm not really aware of much data to support that. Certainly it's going to have biological effects. Um, is it going to be beneficial? I think we don't know. I can share with you some unpublished data from my lab. So we actually published a paper, this is several years ago now, on uh, Pterocarpus marsupium extract, of which pterostilbene is a, a primary constituent. That actually does increase lifespan in, in yeast, um, probably in worms as well. We've gone on, this is unpublished, and we, we find that pterostilbene is at least one of the active components of that extract that can extend lifespan in yeast. So that's a single-celled organism. Will it translate to mice? I have no idea. But here's the kicker. 
the dose range on terostilbene is extremely small. And what I mean by that is there's one dose where you can extend lifespan. If you go up from that twofold, it becomes toxic. So again, that's in yeast, but they just fall off a cliff. So, so I'm not going to be taking terostilbene um, uh, because I, I, I think there's at least a possibility that there is a pretty narrow dose range before which it becomes toxic. Uh, and you know, I wouldn't want to be on the wrong side of that dose range. That brings me to an interesting point. So the word toxic, this is a, a word that is being thrown around again. It's, it's, it's from people that are promoting very extreme all meat diets, but the one thing that they'll say is they'll point to these polyphenol compounds and say, well, Matt, these are part of the plant's defense system, which they are. Um, but then they'll, they'll use that. And in the same sentence say, um, therefore they're actually toxic to human physiology. So, uh, how, what do you, what do you think about that sort of logic that these compounds are part of a plant's defense system? Therefore they must be toxic to humans at any dose. I think you put in the important words at the end of that, which is at any dose, right? So just about any molecule you can think of can be toxic at some dose, uh, but that doesn't mean it's going to be toxic at all doses. And in fact, could be beneficial at some doses. I mean, I think rapamycin is a perfect example of this, right? We know that if you push rapamycin too far, it can have negative consequences, side effects, doesn't seem to actually kill cells, but certainly there are lots of other molecules out there where if you take them too high, they're gonna be truly toxic and lead to cell death or organismal death. Um, but it can still have benefits at lower doses. And so, you know, I think it's just important to appreciate that context and dose makes the poison with many things. And that's, that's certainly going to be true with these, these polyphenols. I would also say that, and this gets back to this question of, are they net beneficial? Most of the studies where people have reported benefits from these polyphenols are also at non-physiological doses, right? Not the doses that you're going to get from you know just eating your normal fruits and vegetables or from drinking red wine if you believe in resveratrol i think you know the original mouse study where they showed that it could offset the detriment of a very high fat diet the dose turned out to be like a thousand bottles of wine a day so so it's not you know it's not the kind of thing that any reasonable person is going to actually achieve even from supplementing with with some of these polyphenols but yeah i mean i think doses is, is critically important and Again, what makes this hard is we don't really know what the effective dose range is for many of these things in people because we don't really know that they work in people yet. Continuing on from um, some of the things that maybe come out of that that section of the, the diet crowd online, um, I have to ask you this. As a biologist that's interested in longevity, what do you think about the, I guess, basic concept that for optimizing longevity – and to achieve a, a sort of long, healthy life, we should eat like our ancestors. If we knew exactly what they ate. So I understand the reason people gravitate towards that idea. So I think there's two things to say. One is our ancestors didn't live a very long time. Now there's lots of reasons for that, but they didn't live a very long time. So it's not clear that that's actually from a longevity perspective, a, a good strategy. And I don't know of any data to support the idea that that kind of an approach is likely to have a positive benefit on 
longevity. So I'm not saying it's wrong, but I, I don't think there's much reason to believe that that's a, a that, that, that that's a that that's likely to be true at this point. Okay. Are there any other supplements that we currently know do affect the hallmarks of aging and you would say are beneficial, um, worth considering now in terms of someone's protocol or at least keeping an eye on? Sure. So again, I think we have to be very clear whether we're talking about data in laboratory animals or data in humans. I think it's important for those of us in the field who want to be taken seriously to say unequivocally, we don't know that anything in from a new, from a supplement perspective or a pharmaceutical is going to positively modulate the biology of aging in people in a way that is going to increase in lifespan and health span. We don't know yet. So what we can what we can certainly say is that yeah, in laboratory animals in mice, there are some things that have been shown reproducibly to significantly increase lifespan and health span, like rapamycin. That's the one that's been most reproduced, um, and some others that maybe haven't been reproduced as much, but where it looks in, interesting and intriguing, and the biology sort of makes sense. So I would put in that category. NAD precursors are interesting. That's complicated because there were some initial studies that claimed lifespan extension, and then uh, that never was reproduced. And so we don't we don't really know what that means. We could talk about that if you want to. But there's they're interesting. They clearly have important biological effects. Um, things like alpha ketoglutarate seem to attenuate frailty in mice and marginally increase lifespan. Uh, things like spermidine have been reported to increase lifespan in a couple of different studies. So yeah, I think there are some things that look interesting from that perspective. And then everybody sort of has to make their own decision from a risk reward hmm. perspective, from a financial perspective, you know, are they going to incorporate these things into their lifestyle, um, as nutritional supplements, um, so, so I, and I, and I tend to, I tend to be, tend to not want to get into making recommendations about that side of it. So what I'll say is I don't take any of those supplements, um, personally. Um, I might consider taking NAD precursors as the data continues to accumulate. I might consider taking alpha ketoglutarate, um, but I don't right now. Uh, I'm kind of waiting, you know, to, 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 to see where it goes, but I also feel like all of these things are more or less incremental compared to trying to get your the other ask the, the buckets that we talked about before in order. So I think they can help some people maybe, but you know, I prefer to focus most of my time and attention on what I think are going to have the biggest, biggest bang for the buck, have the most impact. And, um, you know, and I'm just kind of waiting to see how the, the, some of these things play out. What would you need to see to be, sort of further convinced to have greater certainty? Is it going back to the, originally we were talking about the epigenetic clocks and those getting validated? Is it is it developing some sort of instrument that we know does predict health span and lifespan better and then seeing interventions in humans with these compounds that show benefit with regards to whatever that instrument is? 
Yeah. I don't think there's one answer. Like, I don't think there's one thing. I think, you know, for me, like for everybody else, it's kind of a body of evidence. And when it reaches your personal threshold for like, yep, I think that's right. So for me, I think it could be any or all of those things. You know, I would love it if we had a few things that like rapamycin consistently, robustly increase lifespan in mice and seem to delay or reverse aging across many different tissues and organs. Unfortunately, right now we don't have anything else that's, that, that, that seems to do that, at least that effectively. So in the absence of that, then, you know, an accumulation of multiple studies in mice or starting to get accumulation of multiple studies in people. And that's where I think we're going with the NAD precursors. We're starting to see more and more clinical trials reported showing sometimes marginal benefits, sometimes no benefits, but we're starting to see more and more studies coming out, looking at different aspects of health, disease risk, NAD biology in people to get a feel for, for how effective are these NAD precursors at actually raising NAD levels, their you know, proposed mechanism of action, and then what are some of the potential benefits associated with that? And so I think that kind of data can certainly for me start to move the needle on, on where, I, where I become a believer. And then you talked about the aging clocks. So the epigenetic clocks, I think, are one, uh, one type of biomarker that can give higher level of confidence. But also, you know, some some of these things like the more standard blood parameters, right? Are they moving those in the direction that we would associate with improved health? Um, so I think all of those things will weigh into uh, weigh into the the equation. Um, and you know, it takes a while for that evidence to come out. And again, I tend to be, you know, it's kind of funny because you know I'm on the record as I've taken rapamycin periodically, off and on for a few years. But I tend to be pretty conservative for when I, when I make a jump and like, okay, yep, I'm going to start taking this, and uh, you know, everybody's got their own sort of their own sort of way that they evaluate these things. When it comes to NAD and NAD depletion, do we know if that is a cause of aging or just associates with aging? Um, I think you can certainly find there's certainly evidence that declines in NAD availability, at least in some tissues, play into the hallmarks of aging, um, particularly metabolic dysfunction, mitochondrial dysfunction, even DNA damage. Um, so you can find evidence supporting a causal role. I think, is it definitive? Probably not, but there's enough evidence to support that idea that NAD dysregulation can play a role in the biology of age, a causal role in the biology of aging. I think the open question at this point is, you know, how widespread is that? Um, is that in all tissues and organs? Is it only in some tissues and organs? And to what extent does it contribute? Is it a small contributor or is it a large contributor? You would predict if it was a large contributor that if you could treat with NAD precursors and restore that decline in NAD, you should get big effects on lifespan and health span. To date, as we already sort of talked about, that hasn't been reproducibly shown. So I think, you know, assuming that all of the experiments were done properly, you kind of have to think that, that the role of NAD decline in aging is probably not hugely important overall, but it might be really important in certain disease states or in certain tissues. And so that may be where in humans, maybe it's going to turn out that the NAD precursors are 
particularly beneficial in the context of neurodegenerative disease, but not beneficial for lots of other functional declines and diseases of aging. So that's where we have to kind of, we have to understand the biology better, but also wait for, for some of these clinical trials to, to, to be done. There's a few different NAD precursors, NR and NMN are kind of spoken about most often. Do you have mm-hmm. a view on, based on the biology, is, is one of these um, likely to be more effective than the other? So it's going to depend on who you ask. I am not an expert in NAD biology. I My intuition is they're all the same. <laughs> my intuition is niacin, nicotinamide riboside, nicotinamide mononucleotide. The dose might be different, but you can you can raise intracellular NAD with all of them. And I think of them as roughly equivalent. That's probably going to make Charlie upset on one side and David upset on the other side. But, you know, that's the way I think about it right now. But again, I'm not an NAD expert. So, you know, you take it for what it's worth. (laughs) I want to talk to you a little bit more about rapamycin. I feel like we'll have to carve out time for another episode. I realize we're over two hours here already. Uh, But you've (laughs) mentioned rapamycin quite a few times. And... Uh, there may be some people that are hearing this for the first time. So perhaps we can just briefly kind of summarize what rapamycin is and why the field of geroscience became interested in it in the first place, some of the history behind rapamycin. Sure, love to. Um, so so rapamycin is a small molecule uh, that was first found on Easter Island. That's where the drug gets its name. Rapa Nui is another name for Easter Island. It's actually produced by a bacteria from the soil there. And it was first studied for its ability to prevent cell division. So it's an anti-proliferative. It was studied as an antifungal because it prevents cell division in yeast and an anti-cancer because it prevents cell division in human cells in culture. What it was ultimately developed for clinically and what it was first approved by the FDA for is to prevent organ transplant rejection because of its immunomodulatory effects. So it's often called an immunosuppressant. Um, and that's how it's been used clinically in people for more than more than 20 years. So that sort of happened independent of the interest in rapamycin in the aging biology field. Um, so it was, like I said, developed clinically, approved by the FDA and used extensively in organ transplant patients, also for some forms of cancer, also in stents for, uh, for uh, uh, cardiac uh, disease. Um, so in aging, we kind of got interested in rapamycin back, this was probably 2004 when four different labs sort of independently, like I had no idea these other three labs were thinking about rapamycin or mTOR, which is the protein rapamycin inhibits, um, four different labs independently all found that if you turned down mTOR, you could increase lifespan in three different organisms. We were working in yeast. The other labs were working in C. elegans and nematode worm and in fruit flies. And these papers all came out about the same time. And so we all got excited because you could turn down mTOR, you could increase lifespan, slow aging. There was a drug, rapamycin, that was a specific inhibitor of mTOR. And it turned out you could do the same thing with the drug. You could treat the cells or the animals with rapamycin and increase lifespan. So we were excited, but only the people who worked in yeast and worms and flies were excited at this point. I think when the rest of the field really tuned in and started paying attention was in 2009 when the National Institute on Aging Interventions Testing Program 
showed that you could increase lifespan in mice with rapamycin. And what was really interesting about that study was they started the treatment at 20 months of age. So these are about the mouse equivalent of a 60-year-old person. And that was really the first time anybody had shown you could start an intervention in middle age and still get big benefits. So, so that's when everybody else started paying attention to rapamycin and, and got excited. And since then, so that was 2009. So we're, you know, what, 14, almost 14 years later. Um, since then, what we've learned is that not only can you start in middle age, you can do a short treatment in middle age and still get big benefits on lifespan. You can reverse or delay aging in pretty much every tissue and organ of a mouse where this has been studied. The delaying aging part isn't shocking. If we're modulating the biology of aging, we would expect to modulate functional declines and molecular changes that go along with aging. What's pretty exciting though, is you can actually reverse functional declines, at least in some tissues and organs. So in the, uh, the immune system, people have shown you can restore immune function in an aged animal. In the heart, people have shown you can restore heart function, cardiac function in an aged animal. In my lab, we showed you can reverse periodontal disease in an aged animal. And there's some unpublished studies on ovarian failure and ovarian atrophy in an aged animal. So at least in four different places, you can start the treatment in middle age and within about six to 12 weeks, see functional restoration in some tissues and organs, which that sort of you know middle-aged initiation and functional re rejuvenation make this a very appealing drug to consider from a translational perspective, because you don't have to start in teenagers to get the benefit. And potentially you don't have to look for a change in decline, but you might actually be able to see an improvement in function. So now there are many people trying to initiate clinical trials of rapamycin to look at things like periodontal disease, early ovarian failure. Um, there are also many people taking rapamycin off label so they can get their physician to prescribe it for them for potential health span benefits. Um, and then we've been doing a, a long-term uh, double-blind placebo-controlled clinical trial in pet dogs with rapamycin to try to answer the question, does rapamycin increase lifespan and health span in pet dogs? So there's a lot happening right now. And you know, I'm hopeful in the next few years, we'll start to get some definitive data on to what extent does rapamycin have effects on aging outside of the laboratory? What does the real side effect profile look like in off-label use of rapamycin. Mm -hmm. um, but right now, I think, you know, again, we have to be honest, there isn't a lot of solid data either direction right. in terms of how risky is it and, you know, how beneficial is it going to be? Is there data from, from humans that have been using rapamycin, kidney transplant patients or cancer patients that speaks to, to its effect perhaps on aging? Um, nothing, nothing really, uh, good, I don't think. So that's a very challenging patient population in which to try to ask that question, right? In part because they're organ transplant patients, right? So they're taking not only rapamycin, if they're taking rapamycin, it's important to say not all organ transplant patients take rapamycin or other mTOR inhibitors. It's only a subset. If they're taking rapamycin, they're also taking other immunosuppressants, probably other medications as well. Their life expectancy is greatly truncated. So people have tried to ask this question. I don't think the I don't think there's any clear answer. Like I think I think what we can say is it's probably not the case in that context that rapamycin has big effects one way or the other on health span or lifespan. Mm -hmm. 
but I also think we can't really interpret that data given the uniqueness of that patient population. The one piece of data that looks real to me is that there seems to be a lower risk for many cancers in organ transplant patients taking rapamycin compared to those not taking rapamycin, but not all cancers. So I think lymphomas in particular, there might be an increased risk. So again, it's a little bit mixed. Um, so I don't really know what conclusions to draw from that, that particular patient population. So how would the people that are taking it off-label, I think you mentioned there that you've you take it or you have sort of here and there taken it. How are how are people coming to determine uh, or work out what their dosing protocol is going to be, um, given that there's an absence of data, I guess, in humans that's looked at this? Yeah, uh, it's all over the map <laughs> is the answer. Uh, so I think, so what I can tell you, we've collected this data. It's not published yet, but it, it hopefully will be in a couple months. Um, the most common dose among people using rapamycin off-label is far and away six milligrams once a week. And where did that come from? Um, I think in part, it came from two studies from Joan Manick, where they looked at the effects of a derivative of rapamycin called Everolimus on immune function in the elderly. And they tested three doses in those studies. One was five milligrams once a week, one was 20 milligrams once a week, and, and one was, I think, one or two milligrams daily. And the take-home was that in the weekly dosing groups, there was an improvement in vaccine response. So it looked as though the rapamycin derivative was improving at least that aspect of immune function in healthy elderly people. And at the five milligram once a week dose, the side effects were essentially the same as placebo. So that sort of, I think, was where this once weekly dosing idea came from. And then I think just from you know word of mouth, popularization, six milligrams is kind of where people settled. And so, so that's, that's what most people are doing, but there are some people doing one milligram once a week. There are some people doing 20 milligrams once a week. There are some people doing one milligrams daily. So it's kind of all over the place. Um, and you know, that obviously complicates even the interpretation of any data you collect from, from that group of individuals, because not everybody's doing the same thing in terms of dosing. Everolimus, I think that is that is that the name of the the drug that you just mentioned. Is that is that exactly the same as as rapamycin, and therefore the dosing between the two would be the same, or could they have different sort of half lives? Yeah, so they are different, and in fact, so there are a a, a series of these rapamycin derivatives called rapalogs. Um, Everolimus is the, the most used clinically and, and has been used the longest of the Rapalogs. They all have slightly different bioavailability. Some of them have different tissue distributions. So, so, so yeah, you have to be careful extrapolating from the, the Everolimus dose to the Rapamycin dose. The other thing to say is Rapamycin clearance is very uh, different in different people. Mm. So in an organ transplant patient, usually what they'll dose to is the blood levels, what's called the trough levels, the, the, the lowest level in the blood before the next dose. Um, but again, in this off-label use group, I, very few people are actually measuring rapamycin in blood. And so again, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of whatever people settle on. And, and, and uh, sometimes people will adjust based on if they get 
side effects like mouth sores. That's the, that's the most common side effects. If they get mouth sores, they'll back off on the dose. If they don't get mouth sores, they'll go up. It's, um, you know, it's, it's kind of all over the place. Is that because it's suppressing the immune system? Unclear. So it's unclear to me that the mouth sores are associated with the immune effects. I don't know if people really know what causes the mouth sores. Mm -hmm. Uh, my intuition is no, my intuition is that, that, formation of mouth sores is probably not a good predictor of whether or not the person is immune suppressed. But the real answer is I don't know for mm -hmm. sure. Are there any serious adverse effects that have been reported? I guess, what do we understand about the overall safety profile? How, how safe would you say um, rapamycin is at that sort of five milligram a week doses that you mentioned? Yeah. So, so again, not much published data. So I believe that the, the data we've collected with our survey study is the largest data set on, on people taking rapamycin off-label. So the two studies that Joan did, it's important to note, those were only treatments for six weeks. So over those six-week periods, they had many hundreds of people. So it's a pretty good-sized study. And over that six-week period, at that sort of five mig once a week dosing group, it's pretty much the same as placebo. So at least in the short term, I think the risks of, of uh, rapamycin at that sort of dose level are pretty much non-existent. But longer term, that could be a whole different beast. I think we've probably got the largest data set. So there's two ways to think about this. I can tell you, at least in a general sense, the insights from our data. The other way to think about it, though, is look at the organ transplant patients and say, okay, that's probably a worst case scenario, right? It's very unlikely that that otherwise healthy people taking a low dose of rapamycin are going to have worse side effects than the organ transplant patients. So what would we worry about based on that population? We would worry about potential impaired wound healing. Um, so if you get a severe cut, might slow the healing process. Um, uh, risk of infection, it's used as an immunosuppressant. You would expect that there would be a higher risk of infection. Um, it's uh, increases in circulating triglycerides. So dyslipidemia is uh, a fairly common side effect of high dose rapamycin treatment. So you could imagine over the long term, there could be cardiovascular consequences to that. Um, dysregulation of glucose homeostasis is another common side effect. I think the acute risk is very low. So, so, so rapamycin does not have acute toxicity. There was a case report of somebody who tried to commit suicide by taking more than hundred milligrams of rapamycin. And the only thing they got was high triglycerides. So it's not going to be acutely toxic, but certainly if you get a very severe viral or bacterial infection, that could kill you. So those would be the kinds of things that you would be worried about based on the organ transplant mm -hmm. data. So what have we seen from the lower dose uh, uh, off-label use of rapamycin in otherwise healthy people who aren't taking you know, the immunosuppressants that an organ transplant patient would be taking? The answer is not a lot. So now that we've done the statistics, um, and again, this isn't peer-reviewed published yet, so take it for what it's worth, but we'll be submitting the manuscript soon. Um, Increased mouth sores was the only negative side effect over a three-month period 
that was higher in the rapamycin group than in the non-rapamycin group. So 333 rapamycin users, 172 non-users. We asked them over the last three months, you know, which of these have you experienced? So increased mouth sores is, was clearly a real side effect of rapamycin. It wasn't a huge percent. It was less than like 15%, but some people experienced that. There was a trend towards increased risk of bacterial infections. Uh, but it did not reach statistical significance. So th that's it. There was nothing else that was statistically significant in the rapamycin group compared to the non-users. There were several things that were improved, or I should say more common in the non-users compared to the rapamycin users that were statistically significant. Those are potentially interesting. You know, I think we have to accept these are all survey-based, so this is people's own feelings about what they're experiencing, but things like depression and anxiety, um, the rapamycin users reported significantly less frequently than the non-users. So I don't know if that's real, but it was statistically significant in our group. The other thing that was interesting was in the people who took rapamycin continuously during a COVID-19 infection, there was a significantly lower likelihood of a moderate or severe infection compared to a mild infection, where we defined mild as symptoms for less than a week. So again, you know, it's a it's a small study where people are self-reporting, but it was significantly different between groups. Are there any compounds that have been approved for aging by the FDA? And and is that is that where you see research going with rapamycin um, in the event that it's successful, would it have to sort of jump through a few hoops in, in, in order to be approved by the FDA so people can go to their physician and get a prescription purely for healthy aging? So first of all, rapamycin doesn't have to be approved by FDA for anything more at this point because it's already approved. So at least in the United States, and I think in most countries, once a drug is FDA approved, a physician can prescribe it off-label if they, in their uh, estimation, believe that it could have health benefits for whatever the patient's current medical situation is. But I think the question you're asking is, you know, in general, um, is FDA approval for aging going to be an important piece of the puzzle in terms of, you know, moving molecules that might affect the biology of aging into clinical practice? I don't think so. So, so I think there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding around what FDA is looking for um, when we're talking about drugs that target the biology of aging. And some people argue that, you know, if FDA would only define aging as a disease, then we could do clinical trials to get a drug approved to, to target aging. That's a mis misunderstanding of FDA. FDA is interested in quantitative endpoints that somebody can measure that they believe are telling them something about quality or quantity of life for people. So even if aging was defined as a disease, you still got to have something you can measure, right? That is telling you about aging. I don't think anybody would argue that aging biology is, is not associated with longevity and quality of life, but you still got to have something you can measure. And, and so I think that's really where we're at. We need quantitative endpoints that either are surrogates for biological aging, and that's where these clocks may come in, or we need quantitative endpoints that are telling us something about quality and quantity of life for people, like disease endpoints or functional endpoints. How well is your heart functioning? 
How well is your brain functioning? How well are your muscles functioning? There's really nothing saying that you couldn't do a clinical trial showing that you can improve muscle function in the elderly and get you and not get a drug approved for that. I think you could get a drug approved for that. So I think it's really more about designing these clinical trials for appropriate endpoints. Periodontal disease is a really good example here because it's kind of easy to understand. What are the defining features of periodontal disease? Loss of bone around the teeth, gingival inflammation, and dysregulation of the oral microbiome. Certainly two of those three, maybe all three, would be great endpoints that you could get a drug approved by FDA to target periodontal disease. So you don't have to show that you've targeted aging. You could show that rapamycin or whatever your gerotherapeutic drug is increases bone around the teeth in people with periodontal disease or reduces gingival inflammation. And there you've got your FDA approval. You could do that clinical trial. So again, I think it's more about picking the smart endpoints and working with FDA than trying to get them to define aging as a disease. Is that what the TAME study is doing? So TAME's a little bit different strategy. TAME's strategy is to, instead of saying we're going to use lifespan as a single endpoint or one disease as a single endpoint, we're going to use multiple age-related diseases as what's called a composite endpoint. So in other words, you can take if somebody develops Alzheimer's disease or cardiovascular disease or um, kidney disease. In the case of TAME, you can't use diabetes because that's what metformin is already approved for. But you can take four or five different age-related diseases, and it's an either-or endpoint rather than just one thing. So it's a composite of all of those. And that's the strategy with TAME. And the idea there is that, you know, while maybe only, you know, 1% of people in a five-year period in this age range are going to develop Alzheimer's disease, 10% of them are going to develop one of the five age-related diseases or 20%. The other thing that's sort of unique about TAME is it's not only about the first disease, but it's about the length of time going from the first age-related disease to the second age-related disease. So this is a comorbidity endpoint where you're actually measuring that length of time, which is fairly well established on average how long it takes from when somebody is diagnosed with one age-related disease until they develop their second one. And so the endpoint there is asking, can metformin prolong that period of time to comorbidity? So that's the logic and rationale behind the TAME trial. At least as I right. understand So it. TAME's looking at metformin, and I guess for background, for anyone who's not familiar, there's been some observational research to suggest that metformin may increase lifespan. I think there's some mixed results. I think I saw another paper out of Denmark that maybe suggested that's not the case. Um, how how promising is metformin? How do, how do you see metformin, I guess, relative to something like rapamycin in terms of um, affecting lifespan. Sure. So metformin is interesting and it's true both in the preclinical world. So animal studies in the lab and in the human world that there's mixed data. So in the lab, there's some evidence that metformin can increase lifespan, maybe even more evidence that it doesn't increase lifespan, at least in mice or not by very much, but it seems to move some hallmarks of aging in the right direction, improve some measures of health span in laboratory animals. And then in people, there's this, there are two 
maybe more studies now looking at this. And as you said, they kind of went opposite directions. So just to kind of lay the groundwork, the comparison here, so metformin is the most widely prescribed anti-diabetic drug in the world. So the comparison here is diabetics not taking metformin, diabetics taking metformin, and non-diabetics not taking metformin. And so you can ask in those three populations, are there differences in mortality or life expectancy? One, and I think in both cases, I think everyone agrees that for diabetics taking metformin, they live longer than non-diabetics taking metformin. So it's a very good diabetes mm -hmm. drug. Where they diverged was diabetics taking metformin compared to non-diabetics not taking metformin. One study suggested a small benefit from metformin which would be suggestive that it might actually be affecting aging in humans. The other study, I think, suggested a, a, a detriment to metformin. In other words, diabetics taking metformin were shorter lived than non-diabetics not taking metformin, which is probably what you would expect. So a little bit of contradictory data there. You know, I think we don't know. So, so where, do, where, do, where do I stand on metformin? I think, like I said, metformin is a fantastic diabetes drug. I think for people who have prediabetes, or some, you know, some challenge with glucose homeostasis, it might make sense to go on metformin as a preventative to prevent getting developing into full-blown diabetes, at least until you get your glucose homeostasis under control. I think for people who don't have diabetes or glucose dysregulation, personally, I don't think metformin's a, a great thing to recommend generally to older adults who don't have any impaired glucose homeostasis. And my rationale for that is that there are some reasons to think that metformin may have some negative side effects associated with it that aren't widely appreciated. One is, at least in men, it's pretty clear that some men on metformin have a significant decline in testosterone, free testosterone levels. We know that testosterone declines with age and and you know, that can be important for quality of life. It can be important for ability to maintain and grow new muscle. So I don't personally wouldn't want to do something that's going to impair uh, free testosterone. Um, there's also some evidence, and this is a little, it's a little early. I think, you know, I don't want to make too much of it, but there's some reason to believe that metformin might actually impair some of the benefits that go along with exercise. Um, and so again, you know, it's kind of funny because people thought that about rapamycin for a long time and thought, well, metformin wouldn't do that. And it almost turns out maybe to be the opposite, but there's some reason to believe that's the case. Again, I don't want to overblow that data. It's still early. That may or may not actually hold up. It may depend on the kind of exercise. Um, but for me, I don't, I, 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 and just trying to evaluate the risk reward, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me that people who are not glucose impaired would take metformin given where we're at now with the data we have right now. How does it compare to rapamycin? So based on the preclinical literature, there's no comparison. Rapamycin works all the time. Everybody agrees. Seems to work in most tissues and organs and it extends lifespan robustly. Metformin might work sometimes depending on how you do it and the strain background that you're working in. So rapamycin's far ahead. Human data, we already talked about the human data for rapamycin, the limitations to that. You know, again, my personal view I think rapamycin is more likely to target the biology of aging in people than metformin is, but I could easily see other people would have a different of a difference of opinion. And I think we just have to say there's not enough data to really know at this point. What do you think about potential interactions? 
So in, in Brian Johnson's blueprint, I noticed he was taking both metformin and rapamycin. And I guess this is this can be approached as a more of a general question. Um, but a lot of these studies are looking at a compound in isolation and then measuring some sort of effect on, on, on one's health. Those outcomes can differ from study to study. But is there possible drug or supplement interactions when we're all of a sudden taking a cocktail of things? Yeah, I would even say it's far beyond possible. It's almost approaching certainty that there are going to be interactions. I think, you know, the question is, on average, how often are those interactions going to be additive, synergistic, anti-synergistic? That is hard to predict. So let's take the specific example you said, which is metformin plus rapamycin. That's actually the exception rather than the rule in that we have some data on that. Most of these interactions, we have absolutely no data to, to base our guess on. Case of rapamycin plus metformin, and this comes from mouse studies, so highly controlled. Um, the data is pretty clear. Certainly, metformin plus rapamycin is not a negative interaction for lifespan. It's probably a slight positive interaction, meaning that metformin does nothing. And this is from the intervention testing program studies where metformin has no effect, rapamycin has a positive effect. The combination probably has a little bit more positive effect than rapamycin alone. It's not a big difference, but there's probably a small difference there. But again, that's the exception rather than the rule because there's actually some data. The vast majority of these, these interactions have never been tested in a controlled environment. And so we really can't predict what these interactions are going to look like, particularly when you're taking, you know, not two or three different things, but 12 or 13, or in the case of blueprint, I don't know what the number is, but I think it's over a hundred, right? So it's very hard to predict. Um, my gut feeling is that you're more likely to have, so let's just assume that all of these things are positive, which is a huge assumption. Let's just make that assumption. They all have some positive benefit. You're more likely to counteract a positive benefit by taking a bunch of different things than you are to get additive benefits. And my rationale for that is very simple. Human beings are extremely complex biological systems. It is much easier to break a complex biological system than it is to make it better. And if you just start throwing a bunch of stuff at it, you're more likely to break it than to improve it. So that's that's the rationale for, for why I say that. That could be completely wrong. That's the way, that's where sort of where I've settled. The one thing I would say, and this is where, you know, I'm not a huge fan of the, the blueprint, all of it, but the one thing I would say that I do that I do like about what he's doing is measuring biomarkers to try to assess whether or not this particular set of 100 and whatever things is moving the biomarkers in the right direction. That's kind of the best you can do. So the disadvantage to doing 100 and some things at the same time is if it's moving the biomarkers in the right direction, you don't know which of those things is, is doing it or what combination, or maybe you could do better with only 40 instead of 100 and some. But still, that's kind of the best you can do is to come up with a rational reason why you have each of these things in your protocol, have a set of biomarkers that you, to the best of your ability, think are telling you something important about health or the biology of aging, and then trying to optimize those biomarkers. Huge number of assumptions are built into those biomarkers, 
But I think his rationale is you got to start somewhere. And I, I get that. I wouldn't necessarily agree on the biomarkers completely, but I also don't have any huge you know, problems with the biomarkers that they've selected. I, I think it's a reasonable strategy. Um, the only thing I would say is I don't like the dialogue around reversing aging because I don't think there's any evidence that aging has actually been reversed. Um, and so I just wish that there was a little bit more rigor in the way that this is being talked about. But I do think it's a reasonable approach. If somebody wants to do that, you know, and take that sort of an extreme approach to trying to optimize these biomarkers, it's a reasonable place to start. It's a, a romantic idea, I guess, the prospect of being able to reverse our aging. Um, yes, absolutely. What's what's next with regards to drugs? So we've spoken about rapamycin and, and metformin, and I think you mentioned there that rapamycin was initially isolated from soil bacteria. Do you think there are even more compounds in nature that we haven't discovered that that could improve health span and, and lifespan. Yeah, so I think it's a certainty that there are there are absolutely other molecules out there that can have a potent effect on the biology of aging. If you think about you know what we've tested versus what is out there in nature, it's an infinitesimally tiny fraction. I mean, zero point zero zero one percent of the diversity of molecules that are available to test have been tested for effects on lifespan in any organism. So, you know, I think it would be, we would have had to be crazy lucky to have stumbled on the best out there given what we've tested so far. So I think this is actually a, a huge uh, fertile ground for the field to explore. It's actually one of my concerns about the field. So in general, I am, I am uh, very optimistic about the direction the field is going. Um, I think there are many opportunities to have positive impacts on health span and potentially lifespan in people. But one of my concerns and frustrations is that in general, the field has become much more narrow in the past 10 years rather than broadening out to continue to try to understand what we don't know yet. And I think this is one area that that exemplifies that, that really nobody is doing large scale unbiased screening of small molecules or new genetic variants to identify things that impact lifespan and health span that we don't already know about. So I think this is a huge opportunity. Um, I would love to see more people doing this. Um, our approach, so again, as I said, this has been a frustration of mine for a few years. So a few years ago, you know, I really sat down and tried to ask myself, well, what are the roadblocks to doing that, to really trying to increase our ability at scale to look for new longevity interventions. And one of the roadblocks really comes down to, we didn't have the technology to do even thousands of experiments, let alone hundreds of thousands of experiments in parallel in a reasonable way. And so we set out to try to develop some technology to do that. And so one of the questions I asked myself was, okay, what's the right organism in which to try to do this I, for a variety of reasons. I mean, humans are off the table. Um, I think we would all agree with that. For a variety of reasons, mice are impractical, if not impossible, to do hundreds of thousands of longevity experiments in. So we settled on C. elegans, which is this nematode worm I've alluded to before, in part because they're short-lived, so we can do longevity experiments in a month, and in part because we thought we could automate the process. And so we developed a robotic system called the Wormbot that we've coupled with AI 
to mostly automate longevity experiments in C. elegans. And so, you know, just doing the back of the envelope math, it's a scalable system. If we had 30 of these things running full time and a team to run them, we could get close to 100,000 experiments in a year. Obviously, you could scale up from that even if you if you had the resources. But so that suddenly makes it doable to really go looking for new interventions or combinations of interventions, which we've talked about, that maybe have effect sizes much bigger than rapamycin. Mm-hmm. And so we've started doing pilot screens. We only have a few of these devices, but we started doing, doing pilot, pilot screens where we're doing pairwise combinations of FDA approved drugs. So in this case, metformin plus another FDA approved drug. And metformin in worms consistently gives about a 15% increase in lifespan. And what I can tell you is we've screened more than a thousand now we're getting some really interesting interactions. So things that synergize with metformin where, you know, the drug itself, maybe 10%, metformin, 15%, both of them together, 100%. We're also getting things that go the other direction that anti-synergize with metformin, actually shorten lifespan. Um, So we think that this approach potentially can tell us a lot about the biology of aging, but I'm sure it can help us find new interventions that have bigger effects than what we currently know about, at least in C. elegans, then the question, of course, becomes: Will they also have those big effects on mice and ultimately in people? But that's kind of you know my strategy to try to tackle this problem. I would love though to see more people get engaged with just simply trying to understand what don't we know. Everybody's so focused on the hallmarks and what we think we know. There's a lot that we still don't know about the biology of aging. I'd really like people to to spend a little bit more time looking there. It's fascinating to think about that this compound derived from soil bacteria can act on our biology in a way that could affect our lifespan and that there could be other compounds out there that, that may do similar. Yeah, it absolutely is. On the other hand, this gets back to this evolutionary question we touched on earlier, which is, you know, it it might seem surprising on the surface that rapamycin could potentially increase lifespan. Um, I think one of the things we've learned, at least from the laboratory studies, is it's actually not that hard to extend lifespan. You can do lots of different things and extend lifespan. And from an evolutionary perspective, that sort of makes sense. Remember how I said that evolution and natural selection aren't acting on longevity. There was no incentive from an evolutionary perspective to make human beings live longer than than our species maximum lifespan. So what that means is we're not optimized for longevity. And what that means is there are opportunities to optimize for longevity. So it's maybe not so surprising that, that, that there are lifestyle modifications or small molecules that can target our biology in a way that gets us closer to optimizing for longevity. Mm-hmm. Optimizing for longevity. I might leave you with a more of a philosophical question. Um, I'd love to, to sit down with you again. I had a lot of other things to, to chat to you about, including gene, edit, gene editing and, and CRISPR and, and some of those things. But do you ever think about the ethical implications of prolonging human life? You know, I had George Monbiot on the show and, and he was speaking about the environment and, you know, in many ways it does seem like humans, the way that we're living at the moment, um, in many respects is unsustainable. Is there, an, is there an ethical dilemma to prolonging life? 
So I, I think that's a good question. And I certainly recognize that different people will have different views on this. I think about this in this way. The entire goal of medicine throughout history has been to extend human life, right? Mostly that's been through trying to cure diseases, but that's the goal. The goal is to keep people alive and hopefully keep them alive with some quality of life longer than they would otherwise. So I don't view this ethically as any different than what human beings have done in the approach to healthcare and medicine throughout history. It's just potentially a much more effective strategy at keeping people healthier longer. Um, and so I think if you're going to argue that we shouldn't try to modulate the biology of aging to keep people healthy and alive longer, you can, you can make that argument from an ethical perspective, but you also have to argue that we shouldn't try to treat cancer. We shouldn't try to treat heart disease. We shouldn't try to treat any other thing that might kill you. We shouldn't try to treat somebody who gets in a car accident and is bleeding out. I don't see an ethical difference personally between those. those. And so I think that's the way I think about it. I think this is really about trying to find the most efficient and effective way to maintain health as long as possible for as many people as possible. Matt, this has been incredibly informative. Thank you so much. Um, before I let you go, I might I might just get you to to comment briefly. I know that you're slightly changing your career path uh, in terms of the academic work you're doing and some some new things that you're doing. Can you share a few details about that? Sure. So yeah, so so I'm in the process of uh, transitioning out of my academic position into a. Uh, a position in the private sector with a new startup called Optispan. Um, our goal at Optispan is really to bring, you know, as much of what we've talked about today as possible to as many people as possible. And our approach to that is to start by trying to create the toolkit that will allow physicians, providers to practice science-based longevity and personalized medicine. And, and what I mean by that is to help the physicians to understand what are the most important diagnostics? What can we do? What can we understand about the biology of aging? How do we integrate all of these different data types? And then how do we get that information to the physicians in a way that they can use that information to communicate with their patients and create personalized treatment plans? And really, it's about reducing friction and about uh, applying what we know in a way that actually is doable. If you think about why is it that most people don't receive quality medical care, it's in large part, I mean, there are lots of reasons this is a super complicated problem, but one of the problems is, I believe, that most physicians are still stuck in the disease care mode, right? And it's mostly about using old diagnostics and waiting until people are sick to try to do anything about their health. And we think that we can actually have an impact there. So, so we're hoping to create a toolkit that's scalable for physicians to be able to bring this level of care to their patients. Very exciting. I look forward to, to seeing that come to life. If, if folks would like to uh, connect with you online and stay up to date with everything that you're doing, where should we send them? Sure. So I'm on Twitter at M Caberline 
Um, we haven't talked about the dog aging project, but I'll just make a plug. Uh, if people have a dog and they're interested in the biology of aging, please check out the dog aging project, dogagingproject.org, and consider participating. Um, you know, I'm I, I have I'm a dog person. I've always had dogs. I have an older German Shepherd now, and um, we really believe that we have the, the potential to actually not only understand the biology of aging in pet dogs, but to improve the quality and quantity of life in, in pet dogs. So, um, so if you're uh, if you're a dog person, please consider going to the project and participating. I'm definitely a dog person, so I need <laughs> to ask you one last question. I'm being greedy sure. here, but I know that you've looked at this. Should I feed my dogs once a day? <laughs> Um, so here's what I can tell you what the data say, what the data say are that dogs fed once a day, uh, are less likely to have been diagnosed with a bunch of different age related diseases. So we don't know causality, but that came out of our data. Um, so here's my personal take on that. I've got a 12 year old German shepherd who's been fed twice a day, his entire life. I am not going to switch him to once a day feeding at this point. He wouldn't like it. And I'm not going to do that to him. It'd be a bit grumpy. Having said that, you know, if you're starting with a puppy, the, the data are kind of intriguing. Like I, I, I don't, we can't prove causality, but um, there might be something there. I would say probably the more important thing though is however, however often you feed your dog, don't let your dog get obese, keep your dog active and don't let your dog get obese. And, and I think that, that could be partly why in our study, once a day feeding was associated with all these, these lower, um, risk of disease is because dogs fed once a day might just be less likely to be obese. Very good. Thanks, Matt. Look forward to sure. hopefully doing this again in Seattle. Sounds great. There we go, friends. Thank you for showing up and the effort you're making to take better control of your health. I look forward to hanging out with you again next week for another episode.